Welcome to Queer Serial the Movie. <laughs> Just kidding. But if you've checked the runtime of this episode, you'll see she's a doozy. This is the final episode of Queer Serial, told in five acts. There will be breaks. Take breaks if you like. And stay tuned to hear all about what's coming next for Queer Serial. You can also follow me on Instagram for updates at Queer Serial or subscribe to my periodic email updates. There are links in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the finale. Do you think homosexuals are revolting? You bet your sweet ass we are. We are a revolutionary homosexual group of men and women formed with the realization that complete sexual liberation for all people cannot come about unless existing social institutions are abolished. Babylon has forced us to commit ourselves to one thing, revolution. I want informants inside this group. I want to know all activities aimed at overthrowing, destroying, or undermining the government of the United States or any of its political subdivisions. All power to the people, gay power to the gay people. File this under their group name, whatever it is. Fag Liberation Movement. Previously. A story once told in whispers. I venture to predict that there will be a time in the future when gay folks will be accepted as part of regular society. Everybody said that gays would not fight back. We've set a movement in motion. Would you two like to be part of a group of women like us? J. Edgar Hoover will definitely find out who I am. You should be more careful, Barbara. I want informants inside this group. I can give you his address, and he's using a pseudonym. Your reputation shot the hell the minute you came in here, you know. Just give me the money. Don't worry about it. What kind of woman are you? We played the roles in public, and then we went home and fought about them. In the matter scene, we are seeking acceptance of the homosexual in society. I think we have to decide how far we can go caring about what heterosexuals think. Mincing steps and broken wrists. Deliberately offensive. A conclave of ladies with crew cuts. Let's cut our hair. Let's get dressed up like straights. I don't know what you're trying to prove. You're a cute little butch. Homosexuality is, in fact, a mental illness. I defy any doctor in the world to prove that I am not a woman. I have lived a good citizen for many years in this town, and I'm going to die a good citizen. But I am going to die a woman. This picket line on July 4th was met with a degree of disbelief. They set themselves up as the fools who could speak out against depression. I think we should take this crowd on and make them put up or shut up. Throw away that brochure on homosexual rights in the law. And I wish, too, that you could have been with me through all of this. What can the police do about them? Oh, there she is. The devil with the blue dress on. Having been forced into a battle, I am determined that this thing will be fought through to a successful conclusion, come what may. What do you say? United we stand, divided they catch us one by one. Get off me, pig! And it seems inevitable that the mob will pour in. I intend to be a homosexual and I intend to find out exactly what this life is going to be like. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the series finale of the serialized story of queer liberation in America. From the beginning to Stonewall. The very fact that it takes so many laws to enforce heterosexuality shows that homosexuality is natural. Henry Gerber wrote to his pen pal in 1940, 26 years after his organization, the first gay rights organization in the U.S., collapsed and ruined his life. 
He spent the following years running his discreet gay contact service, hoping, but rarely believing, an American gay rights organization would succeed. In 1940, when Gerber wrote that letter, complaining about the many laws keeping queer people and organizations like his stifled, there was still little hope. It took another decade before the Mattachine Foundation formed, then the Daughters of Belitis, then transgender people began rebelling in public. It took two more decades for our community to safely organize in public, reveal their faces, resist the cops. All while the FBI stalked them, the State Department fired them, the police beat them, and the history books left them out completely. They were spoken about in code in the newspapers, often as a joke, often misgendered, often as deservedly murdered perpetrators of indecent advances. It took painstaking time to unify isolated queer people everywhere and urge them into action, to educate queer folks about what they were, which was still so mysterious then. And then they had to educate the stubborn public about what they were by forcing a movement that could not be denied its power. Those were the first goals of the movement, written in Harry Hay's 1948 essay, The Call. His goals were to unify, to educate, to lead. The Mattachine founders read those words as they quietly gathered on the hillside by Harry's house, hidden in the tall grass. Grassroots organizing, right? They would all soon be outcast by their own organization, but the intentions of their activism would succeed. By the time of the uprising at the Stonewall, about 20 years later, there were finally about 50 gay rights groups across the country, unifying, educating, leading, various chapters of once national homophile organizations that splintered, spin-off groups, and brief blips of small towns attempting to organize their own community, like my hometown of Evansville, Indiana. After Stonewall, it will only take five years for about a thousand gay rights groups to be established. Groups that will look drastically different from the early days of the secret living room meetings and stick figures on discreet magazine covers, though the internal conflicts will remain remarkably similar in the new organizations. The new group's actions will grow necessarily bolder, and the fight will be long. After Stonewall, the homophile movement becomes the gay liberation movement as the torch is passed to new leaders. In the days following the Stonewall Rebellion, lovers Barbara Giddings and Kay Tobin Lehusen leave their rented house on Fire Island and return to the city, finding Greenwich Village buzzing with energy. These two early daughters of Belitas, and former editor and photojournalist of the latter, a lesbian review, they immediately look for a gay liberation front meeting. They've outgrown Belitas and Mattachine, and as usual, Barbara and Kay are skipping ahead to what seems to be the most progressive, powerful action for queer people. The GLF crowd is huge, lots of young people milling around, excited about the uprising. Barbara and Kay's friend, Mattachine Society of Washington President Frank Kameny, joins them in the crowd, taking a break from the constant flood of calls from across the country to his house on the Mattachine phone line, all asking for advice on how to start an organization. Barbara, Kay, and Frank listen as teens and 20-somethings shout big, radical ideas, 
unite the races, end sexism, overthrow capitalism. The former homophiles, determined in this moment to push their movement further than ever before, are spotted by a young new activist. She points at Barbara's conservative clothes, the kind Barbara's always worn, a button-up, slacks, a handsome sweater, and the young activist looks Frank's suit up and down. What are your credentials? One has a Lindsay for mayor button. Are you a fascist? Excuse me? Kay is shocked. What are you all doing here? Barbara is pissed. I'm gay. That's why I'm here. Barbara Giddings will not be brushed off. This movement has become her life. Before activism, she dropped out of Northwestern because she was spending all her time in the college library researching everything she could find about homosexuality in medical books full of wildly incorrect statements. She had to know what she was, and once she figured it out, she had to correct those books. She and Frank have already co-defended gay civil service clients and successfully spoken before the Department of Defense and discredited the so-called doctor, Charles Socorides, who peddled those medical myths. It was a fantastic success, but Barbara wants to remove the myths from the books for good. Frank has also experienced this, being pushed out of the way by the younger, brash activist while his own major goals are still incomplete. Picketers at the 5th Annual Reminder in 69 ignored Kameny's rules, holding hands and breaking from the lines. Gay bookshop owner Craig Rodwell was thrilled by it all, and now he envisions a new annual celebration in the place of Frank's picket. A celebration that carries on the tradition of the original protest at Independence Hall and also commemorates the birth of the gay liberation movement that night at the Stonewall. The line stretches down a New York City block to get into the Gay Liberation Front's dance. The meeting room they're renting at Alternate U, the counterculture center, is packed with gay people, dancing under low lights. Not so low that they feel like they're hiding, but low enough to be romantic. Beer costs a quarter, and if you can't afford the cover charge at the door, they'll let you in for free. Most of the groups that host dances at Alternate U have small crowds, but GLF draws people from all over. People come from Jersey and Baltimore. There are even lesbian-only dances, where women can dance half-dressed or even naked on a hot summer night. The most important part, though? No mafia. Still, like the earliest days of the homophile groups, these people are just looking for a safe space to dance and be around people like them. But now they're not quietly stuffed into a living room or a dumpy mafia bar. GLF members convince bar owners to put up bulletin boards so they can advertise the massive gay events, which is no easy feat considering the mafia bar owners want their clients as controlled and out of touch with the gay movement as possible, so that their customers will continue to desperately seek out mafia-run gay bars as the only option. But people are getting wiser, seeing that the mob will push around and rip off their own customers. After Stonewall, a lesbian couple dancing in one gay bar is interrupted by a businessman trying to cut in on them. The women refuse, and he punches one of them in the face, while the mafia guy at the door just watches and doesn't do anything. 
quickly after. Young people fill that bar. They turn on the jukebox and dance, but nobody buys a single drink. The mafia bar owners are confused. So Martha Shelley goes over to explain. Her knees shaking, she looks them right in the eye. We're here as a sort of sit-in, a dance-in, because this is our space. You've opened a gay bar, and you're refusing to take care of gay people. Do you know who I am? I don't know, and I don't care. But we're the Gay Liberation Front. Come out! Get your copy of Come Out! Newspaper of the Gay Liberation Front. Martha Shelley stands on a snowy village street corner as a middle-class couple walks by pushing a stroller. Get your copy of Come Out! Read what your kid's going to be like when he grows up! They jump, walking a little faster. The GLF is turning a huge profit from their huge dances, so they start their newspaper, and a bail fund for members who get arrested, and programs to provide free lunches for people who need them. They place an ad in the Village Voice seeking submissions from gay photographers and writers for their paper. At the top of the ad, they state their mission. Gay power to gay people. But the Village Voice, as we heard in the previous episode, has a long history of looking down on gays. For instance, in 1959, David McReynolds wrote, Krim is off base in suggesting that queer brigades are about to storm the citadels of prudery with Reichian slogans inscribed on their sequin banners. First, homosexuals as a group aren't going to lead any revolt because the last thing they want is to get involved in any real struggle. They just want to be let alone to lead their precious lives in their presently established dainty fashion. Second, in implying some kind of moral integrity and fervor to the quote-unquote gay underground is to fail to see gay society for what it is a tragic subculture. But the Village Voice accepts the new magazine ad from the Gay Liberation Front and their money, then runs the ad without the gay power to gay people header. GLF is furious. They submit another ad to the Voice for their upcoming dance, making sure to use the word gay again. Gay community dance. GLF gets a call from the Voice. It's our policy to refrain from printing obscene words in classified ads. Why would anyone consider the word gay? The staff decided that gay is equitable with four-letter words. You can change the ad, but we won't run this. (laughs) Can I play straight? GLF asks The Voice to give them a written explanation about their new policy. They're planning to use that explanation in a lawsuit against The Voice, but the paper won't provide it. The paper's publisher, Ed Fancher, avoids the GLF as they try to serve him a lawsuit until they show up at his door. What? We would like to speak with you about your policy against... You should not have done such an outrageous thing as to come to my place of residence. Gay power to gay people. Gay power. September 12, 1969. At 9 a.m., GLF pickets the Village Voice offices, a few feet from the stone wall. They give away coffee and collect signatures at a table while passing out 5,000 copies of a flyer about this fight with the newspaper. Ed Fancher shows up at 10 and hides inside his office throughout the day of picketing. Lots of signatures are collected, and at 4.30, 
they submit a new ad. The Gay Liberation Front sends love to all gay men and women in the homosexual community. Howard Smith, the voice journalist who was trapped inside the Stonewall with the police, he steps outside and invites GLF leaders in. The activists are reprimanded for targeting this so-called liberal paper, but they hold their ground until the voice gives up. Fancher finally says, fine, we'll print gay and homosexual. One of the GLF leaders flashes a V for victory sign out the window. The Washington Post still refuses to print ads for the Washington of Mattachine, no matter how much the Mattachinos write to the publisher or ask for help from the ACLU. But a protest with no rules, no planning in advance, just a mob looking for justice, yields immediate results outside the Village Voice. Come Out announces on their cover, Village Voice Goes Down. I think that they will accomplish quite a bit of good. At the moment, they're busy heckling Procaccino and Marshy in the New York mayoral race. They go to campaign rallies and get up and ask pointed questions about the candidates' attitudes toward the problem of New York City's homosexuals. Questions for which the candidates are totally unprepared. They recently picketed the village voice, which used to be avant-garde, but which has steadily moved over in the middle. They were totally successful. Unfortunately, there's a conflict situation arising with MSNY, entirely by MSNY's choice. MSNY is resolutely non-cooperative. I urged Dick Leish to work with GLF instead of against them, with the feeling that each can contribute a great deal to the other, but he's not buying that. Cordially, Frank. While The Post won't print Frank Kameny's Mattachine ads, they do reference his organization— while covering the uprising at the Stonewall and the GLF protest outside the Village Voice, the Post notes that Washington has not become as rebellious as New York. All the homosexuals have here in D.C. is their Mattachine newsletter about court cases. Frank writes to the editors, The immediate present often tends to loom up too large and out of proper perspective, at expense of the achievements of the past— The annual reminder pickets were at least as novel, as pioneering, as militant, as extreme, and as indicative of a new openness as the more recent demonstrations in New York and elsewhere, and, in fact, prepared the groundwork without which those more recent demonstrations would have been quite impossible and simply would not have occurred. Gay is good. Sincerely yours, Franklin E. Kameny. The picket clearly won't be coming back for a sixth time in 1970. Frank finally writes to Dick Leisch. MSNY president, who resisted the 69 picket. You might recall, Dick also recently wrote to Frank's partner in activism, Barbara Giddings, to say that the annual reminder picket is becoming too establishment, and he urged her to come to New York and stop playing solicitor to his barrister in Frank's legal charades. Barbara showed Frank the letter. Frank has had enough. Dear Dick, Some time ago, Barbara Giddings showed me a copy of your letter of June 24th to her in regard to the July 4th demonstration. I have several comments. The purpose of the demonstration is not to put homosexuals on display in their chosen finery. 
It is not a chance for homosexuals to do their thing. It is not an opportunity for homosexuals to have a day's outing in Philadelphia. It is an effort to change the negative attitudes of the populace at large by the most effective means. If we thought that we could best change attitudes on homosexuality by a picket line consisting of sexual eunuchs dressed in loincloths and riding unicycles, our picket line would consist solely of asexual loincloth unicycle riding eunuchs. Everyone else would be excluded. What happened was that with the duplicity which renders you so impossible to work with, because everyone has long ago learned that any relationship between what you say and actual fact is purely coincidental, you told me what you believed I wanted to hear, while not telling your picketers what you didn't want to tell them. As I have pointed out before, if a hippie dressed as such and a man in a suit, shirt, and tie get up before an average audience and presented the same identical message, the suited man will be listened to and his message accepted by far more people than in the case of the hippie. That is not as it should be, but it is as it is. Finally, considering the little self-perpetuating cabal who have taken over MSNY and run it, I hardly think that you have any valid comments to make about establishments. You didn't even bother to send out ballots to all of your members this year. Now, having said all of the proceeding, let's call a spade a spade. I suspect that being a basically sensible and intelligent person You probably agree with most of the above, although you would never admit it. What really bothers you is that MSNY generally, and Dick Leish in particular, are not the ones running these demonstrations. And heaven forbid that anything in the movement should go on of which MSNY is not in control. That has been the unfortunate pattern of MSNY's relationships with other groups throughout the years. The leopard never seems to change its power-mad spots. It's really a pity, because you could contribute so much more and accomplish so much more and put your evident abilities to so much more effective use if you worked in cooperation with others rather than an endless competition, conflict, and rivalry, all quite unnecessary. Sincerely, Frank. The remaining court jesters keep up the Mattachine Society's tradition of quibbling and quibbling via correspondence Their organization ages into becoming the old queen of the gay movement. Amid the bickering and bankruptcy of the late 70s, MSNY will finally abdicate as new organizations rise. On the West Coast, Mattachine of San Francisco's Hal Call refocuses their office on his book service, especially after Mattachine Review stopped publishing back in 67. Hal turns his book service into the Adonis Bookstore, which is quite different from the Oscar Wilde bookshop. Adonis sells explicit gay books and films. 
Hal later opens a sex education screening room on the same tenderloin block, which he calls Cinematachine. As if the word Mattachine isn't confusing enough, that is cinema and Mattachine merged together. Cinematachine, with a capital M in the middle. And after about a decade of pissing off other activists by using the Mattachine name to make a buck, again, Hal will rename that theater to something a little more accurate, the Circle J Cinema. Out of the ruins of the San Francisco Mattachine Society, Hal will finally make a successful gay business, despite lots of legal trouble. And that's an absolutely filthy story I'll tell you on the bonus podcast. As Mattachine chapters fade, Frank Kameny wisely, finally, focuses his attention on the new militant demonstrations. In a 1970 audio documentary called Gay and Proud, reporter Breck Artery interviews Kameny. The Stonewall Rebellion will be remembered as one of the major turning points in the homosexual struggle for equality. Dr. Franklin Kameny, president of the Washington, D.C. Mattachine Society, explains why. What's important is the message which is being conveyed, and that should be made absolutely clear. And that is that we've been shoved around for 3,000 years, and we're tired of it, and we're starting to shove back. And if we don't get what's coming to us and get it promptly, there's going to be a lot more shoving back. So in essence, you would say that the, uh, the beneficial effects far outweigh the negative? Oh, very, very much so. Queens. Democrat Mario Procaccino campaigns for New York mayor. He's smiling, working through the crowd, shaking hands. He shakes the hand of a young man with messy hair who won't let the candidate's hand go. Mr. Procaccino, what are you going to do about the oppression of the homosexual? Procaccino's face falls. He leans into the activist, Jim Owls. Young man, I can see that you're very interested in this problem. This is one of the many problems that we must face in New York. We must show understanding and compassion for them. It is sick rather than criminal. At the Gotham Young Republican Club, New York State Senator John Markey finishes his speech and someone stands. Senator Marchai, are you aware of the emerging militancy within the homosexual community and how does this relate to your views on law and order? Will homosexuals become targets or will you be responsive to their needs? Uh, uh, it was being considered by some committee, and it was a topic for the state legislature. Senator, it's not just a legislator. As mayor, you have control of the police force. How will this affect the lives of New York's 800,000 homosexuals? I, I will enforce the laws and prevailing mores of society. Soon after, October 1st, at a candidate's forum, there's an audience of 2,000. Thirteen people are scattered throughout that crowd, waiting for their submitted questions to be chosen and asked to the mayoral candidates. The moderator isn't reading any of them, so after 90 minutes... In 1776, Mr. Procaccino, the homosexual revolution has begun. Mr. Marchai, what will you do to ensure raids on gay bars end? How will you protect the jobs of homosexual employees in New York? Police officers move in on the audience... But the League of Women Voters surround the Gay Liberation Front members to protect them. When they're asked to leave, several straight audience members follow GLF outside. Other people stay and keep pushing the candidates on the same questions about gay issues. 
NBC and the New York Post cover the episode, this new style of political confrontation becoming known as a zap. The new gay liberation movement spreads across the nation immediately. At Woodstock, Vernita Gray, a young woman of color, sees a muddy little table with a sign saying Stonewall. She grabs a pamphlet, takes it back to Chicago, and quickly begins organizing. She starts a phone support line for gays from her own apartment, the phone number spelling out FBI List. Vernita puts her ad in the paper around the same time as a University of Chicago student, Henry Wiemhoff. His ad says, Roommates wanted. Two gay students wanted to share five-room unfurnished apartment, 53rd and Harper. Both Henry and Vernita's phones start ringing constantly. Vernita's phone rings so often, eventually she just has to move. They get a better idea and team up. October 24th, 1969. Another ad in the Chicago student paper The Maroon announces the formation of Chicago Gay Liberation. Gay power in 69 and 70. Anyone interested in joining the Hyde Park Homophile League formed last quarter at UC, right box 69, care of Maroon. Replies kept confidential. Their group hosts massive gay dances on the University of Chicago campus. They get so big and full of gay people who aren't even students that the dance is shut down. They have to move to a public space. Fortunately, there's one massive space that's been hosting queer parties since the late 1800s. The Coliseum on the south side. See why I tell you to put pins in things? Two aldermen raked in a ton of graft there hosting their legendary first ward balls, and that's where Chicago Gay Liberation hosts their dance, too. Two days before the event, 250 people rally in Grant Park for gay freedom, and they spread word of the dance down Washington Street. Gay Liberation leaders haven't even found an insurance policy for the dance yet. Most of the brokers in town are certain that the police will raid a gay dance. But finally, someone insures them the day before, the Coliseum fills with 2,000 queers, and the police are quickly behind. A team of attorneys greet the officers at the Coliseum doors, ready to cite any civil liberty violations. The cops leave, and the Chicago Gay Liberation Dance lasts late into the night. Still buzzing from the party, the next weekend, Chicago gay lib activists meet at a gay bar, the Normandy Inn, to protest strict dress codes and the rules against same-sex dancing, just a few blocks from the police station where Henry Gerber was booked almost 50 years ago. The bar owners immediately agree to drop the rules. Thanks are due to gay liberation for getting dancing in gay bars. Valerie Taylor writes in the Mattachine Midwest newsletter. Meanwhile, across town, Mattachine begins a Chicago bar patrol on the weekends, looking to put a significant crimp in police raid plans by hiring responsible observers who will be prepared to testify to the falsity of police allegations of public indecency. 
gay liberation works its way to the West Coast, too. In San Francisco, on October 31st, 1969, their GLF gathers at the San Francisco Examiner offices. It's the final straw with the newspaper's anti-gay language, which you've heard over the past three seasons. The activists also demand for the paper to stop printing the names and addresses of people arrested at gay bars and on cruising grounds. GLF and Sir picketers surround the front of the office building outside, making noise. A window opens, and newspaper employees open a plastic bag full of purple printer ink and pour it out onto the activists. They all drop their picket signs and put their hands in the ink pooling on the sidewalk. They smear purple handprints all over the front of the newspaper office building. One person uses the ink to write on the wall, Fuck the examiner! Another protester begins writing, Gay is... And suddenly, he's grabbed by the hair and dragged to a police van. Squad cars pull up, and cops beat and arrest the activists, not the ink-dumping employees. Mayhem erupts as the cops swing clubs and knock people down. The San Francisco Free Press editor is shoved against the wall and dragged away. Former Vector editor Leo Lawrence snaps a photo of a young boy being clubbed by police before he's also dragged to the van. Leo pulls the film from his camera and tosses it to Sir President Larry Littlejohn, who stands watching in disbelief. Everyone who gets away pickets down through the Tenderloin to Glide Methodist Church and on to San Francisco City Hall. They hold a sit-in in the mayor's office until the remaining three activists are arrested and the protest is done. It'll become known as the Friday of the Purple Hand. Down in Los Angeles, another GLF forms. They start a bail fund and an underground VD clinic for gay people. Sometimes their GLF meets in the Tangents magazine office. Sometimes they meet in Harry Hay and John Burnside's Kaleidoscope factory. The mostly young group elects the original Mattachine founder, Harry Hay, as their first chair, and they begin to plan their pickets of places like Barney's Beanery in West Hollywood, a coffee shop with a misspelled sign reading, Faggots Stay Out, F-A-G-O-T-S. In fact, you can see the owner of the coffee shop proudly standing in front of his misspelled sign in that 1964 Life magazine article that I covered in the season three premiere. The LAGLF hosts dances to defy the anti-gay dance laws. They hold a gay inn in Griffith Park to defy the police warning gays not to gather in the parks. They pass joints and poppers down their picket lines. The movement clearly has changed. The GLF groups are bold and unapologetic. Harry Hay writes LAGLF's statement of purpose, which ends, Our goal is total liberation. Life is for the living. We are alive. We all want to be alive. Sex is a sure cure of boredom and an antidote to the violence that is so American. Power to the people. Once hiding in the bushes and dark living rooms, now the movement is so loud that Americans can't ignore them. 
On October 31st, 1969, as San Franciscan queers cover the streets in purple handprints, Time Magazine's new issue hits the stands, a response to the Stonewall Uprising. The cover repeats Time's famous 1966 headline, The Homosexual in America, this time adding, The Homosexual, Newly Visible, Newly Understood. Though it becomes clear in this issue that homosexuals are not entirely understood, the piece starts by explaining Dr. Evelyn Hooker's study of homosexuals, that so-called fairy project, and the Kinsey reports. They cover quote-unquote transvestites, Sappho, Ginsburg, Wilde, Baldwin, Tennessee Williams, a sidebar gets into Charles Socorides and Mattachine's Dick Leish and Frank Kameny, and the report goes on. An exclusive formal ball will mark Halloween in San Francisco this week. In couturier gowns and elaborately confected masquerades, the couples will whisk around the ballroom until 2 a.m., while judges award prizes for the best costumes, and the participants elect an empress. By then, the swirling bells will sound more and more deep-voiced, and in the early morning hours, dark stubble will sprout irrepressibly through their pancake makeup. The celebrators are all homosexuals, and each year since 1962, the crowd at the annual Beaux-Arts Ball has grown larger. Halloween is traditionally boys' night out, and similar events will take place in Los Angeles, New York, Houston, and St. Louis. And then the reporter covers movies and theater, taking a turn. Is there a homosexual conspiracy afoot to dominate the arts and other fields? Sometimes it seems that way. I guess sometimes it does seem that way, but the article perpetuates this myth among many others. At their fullest flowering, the Persian, Greek, Roman, and Muslim civilizations permitted a measure of homosexuality. As they decayed, it became more prevalent. Sexual deviance of every variety was common during the Nazis' virulent and corrupt rule of Germany. Most experts agree that a child will not become a homosexual unless he undergoes many emotionally disturbing experiences during the course of several years. They still seem fairly bizarre to most Americans. The homosexuals have never been so visible, vocal, or closely scrutinized by research. Inverts have been organizing to claim civil rights for themselves as an aggrieved minority. Their new militancy makes other citizens edgy, and it can be shrill. Most straight Americans still regard them with a mixture of revulsion and apprehension. A poll released last week stated that 63% of the nation consider homosexuals harmful to American life. There is a large variation among homosexual types. The blatant, the secret lifer, the desperate, the adjusted, and the bisexual. We may eventually conclude that there are as many causes for homosexuality as there are for mental retardation, and as many kinds of it. The case for greater tolerance of homosexuals is simple. Undue discrimination wastes talents that might be working for society. Police harassment, which still lingers in many cities and more small towns, despite the growing live-and-let-live attitude, wastes manpower and creates unnecessary suffering. The laws against homosexual acts also suggest that the nation cares more about enforcing private morality than it does about preventing violent crimes. I mean... I do agree with the last half of that paragraph, defund the police. 
But then Time Magazine concludes, While homosexuality is a serious and sometimes crippling maladjustment, research has made clear that it is no longer necessary or morally justifiable to treat all as outcasts. The challenge to American society is simultaneously to devise civilized ways of discouraging the condition and to alleviate the anguish of those who cannot be helped or do not wish to be. The Gay Liberation Front prepares to picket Time Magazine. The day after the issue is released, November 1st, the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations meets in Philly at a gay bar called My Sister's Place. Frank Kameny announces that this will be his final conference as chairman because he's getting so busy, which is likely fine with the many young activists from the Student Homophile Leagues and the Gay Liberation Front who have arrived with some changes in mind. The young militants propose and pass several motions on sexual freedom, birth control, abortion, drug use, stopping discrimination against minorities, support of the Black Panthers and women's liberation, and an end to the war in Vietnam. Next, they put an official end to the pickets and their dress codes. Ellen Broidy from the NYU Student Homophile League presents a new demonstration to replace the annual picket. She has a resolution which she's been working on with Craig Rodwell from the Oscar Wilde Bookshop, his lover, and another lesbian. Their idea will not only replace the annual picket, it'll also be a celebration of the Stonewall Uprising's anniversary. That the annual reminder, in order to be more relevant, reach a greater number of people, and encompass the ideas and ideals of the larger struggle in which we are engaged, that of our fundamental human rights, be moved both in time and location. We propose that a demonstration be held annually on the last Saturday in June in New York City to commemorate the 1969 spontaneous demonstrations on Christopher Street, and this demonstration be called Christopher Street Liberation Day. No dress or age regulations shall be made for this demonstration. We also propose that we contact homophile organizations throughout the country and suggest that they hold parallel demonstrations on that day. We propose a nationwide show of support. Once again, Dick Leish and his New York Mattachine are not on board. This is the final episode of Queer Serial, but stay tuned for a brand new sort of sequel, a spinoff, a sister series. She'll feature some familiar characters, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, the Society for Individual Rights, the Tavern Guild, all sorts of San Francisco queer politics. I showed that in the race for supervisor. I got 53,000 votes throughout the city. I, about three years ago, I got mad out of the whole situation that I either had to go ahead and shut up and not buy the papers anymore, not watch my television anymore, or do something about it. And I'm still mad. Featuring never-before-heard audio of Harvey Milk and his successor, Harry Britt. This is Harvey Milk speaking from my camera store on 
This is to be played only in the event of my death by assassination. This is just Harvey being paranoid here, as he's not going to get killed. The mayor has the power, George Moscone, of appointing my successor on the board of supervisors. So I would like to have him know what my thoughts are. And that's when Harvey took me aside and told me that he expected to be killed and that he wanted me to live my life in such a way that when he was killed, I would be available to be his successor. The third choice I would have would be Harry Britt, who most people don't know. Coming early next year, a brand new queer serial sister series. Give him Hell Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. Written by my good Judy historian Will Roscoe. For a closer look at the series, click the link in the episode notes to check out our Indiegogo page. We are crowdfunding to produce the show, a seven-episode series following an important queer leader that you've probably never heard of. Give as little or as much as you'd like to support the series. We've got lots of rewards, like a limited edition recreation of Harry Britt's button from his 1987 campaign for Congress. It's fabulous. Three postcards with some fantastic art, including the White Knight Riots and Jane Fonda. Yes, Jane Fonda on a queer history postcard. You'll also get an exclusive peek of the show and more. Check it out now. There's a link in the episode notes. Some people may find him wrong because he is somewhat emotional, but by God, what fabulous emotions. One who will not be pushed around. One who understands where the movement is and where it must go. Almost everyone at the Homophile Conference votes in favor of the Christopher Street Liberation Day march, including, of course, Barbara Giddings. She's thrilled by this development. Mattachine of New York abstains from the vote, saying, We do not feel that the Stonewall riots were particularly beneficial to the homophile movement, although we seriously doubt that a small group of militants can destroy in a few months what has taken us 15 years to build up. We do not wish to support their attempt. Chairman Kameny counts the votes. The resolution for a new annual reminder passes, a march, which will later become a parade, usually called Pride. The North American Conference for Homophile Organizations holds a couple more conferences, but infighting between radicals and assimilationists break the group down, a tale I've been telling since episode one. By the next year, at their final meeting, the SFGLF will crash the homophile discussion for a debate. The magazine Gay Sunshine will describe the meeting as the battle that ended the homophile movement. Put a pin in that. Kayla Husen writes to Frank Kameny, I believe the opposition will try to get Erko and NACO to repudiate your and Barbara's work against the federal government on the grounds that it is irrelevant. And who wants a security clearance anyway? And who wants to work for the government anyway? And burn the universities too? I think the movement will just have to split. And you had best not waste your precious time trying to save it. 
conflict builds between the trailblazers of the movement and the new generation of young radicals. Meanwhile, inside those new organizations, of course, there's conflict building there, too. A gay tale as old as time, schisms quickly form. The Gay Liberation Front newspaper, called Come Out, accuses another new gay paper called Gay Power of profiting off of the movement. The GLF members vote against this accusation, but their own magazine, Come Out, prints a scathing article about the other paper. GLF votes to shut their own paper down, so the folks working on the paper separate the magazine from its own organization. Shedding more members in another fight, GLF activists argue about whether or not they should be donating money to the Black Panthers, since the Panthers often use homophobic language. But, some people argue, GLF's purpose is to stand with all minorities, all intersections, for total revolution over the establishment. It can't be done alone. Chief Pig Mitch and Super Pig Tricky Dick have launched a national crackdown on gay ghettos. They want to isolate and divide people, gay and straight, black and white, workers and youth. It is up to gay people to not antagonize potential friends, i.e. we don't harass those who don't harass us. A series of GLF resignations follow. Back in Chicago, in early December 1969, Mattachine Midwest hosts a benefit at the opening night performance of The Boys in the Band at the Studebaker Theater. The cast recording album has already come out, and everyone in the audience already knows all the lines and yells out the punchlines with the cast. As Albert Williams, voice of Frank Kameny on this podcast, will tell you, it was joyous mayhem. It's covered in all the papers the next day. The Sun-Times critic writes, There were times when I wished it were 1953, and the play that I was watching was Tea and Sympathy. The audience hooted, hollered, and applauded its way through the evening, and almost managed to turn what is a compassionate, devastating, and brilliant piece of writing into a circus. Three months later, March 1970, Albert Williams and other activists pass out flyers outside the Carnegie Theater on Rush Street. Inside, the new movie version of Boys in the Band is playing. Albert and his friends use the movie as a teaching opportunity. They don't want audience members to get the wrong idea. Not all gays are as self-loathing as the characters in this movie. It's a drama for you. It's a fucked up comedy for some of us. You're a sad, pathetic man. You're a homosexual. And you don't want to be. Who is she? Who was, Who was she? Who does she hope to be? Their flyers say, the pain and cruelty typified by the boys in the band should be understood as the expression of human lives damaged by an environment of condemnation, suspicion, job discrimination, and legal harassment. Across town, on Chicago's west side, two days later, just before dawn, Black Panthers Fred Hampton and Mark Clark are killed. 
Fred Hampton was deputy chairman of the National Black Panther Party, a 21-year-old rising leader dedicated to his community who organized rallies, blood drives, a free medical center, and five breakfast programs. He taught political education classes, and he organized a non-aggression pact between Chicago's gangs. On December 4th, 1969, a tactical unit from the Cook County State Attorney's Office and the Chicago Police raided Fred Hampton's apartment. They fired nearly a hundred bullets into the apartment and went in to find the activist right where they planned for him to be. Earlier that night, Fred had been drugged by one of his own members, sent by the FBI. An officer fired two bullets point-blank into Fred Hampton, asleep in his bed. In 1971, activists will raid a Pennsylvania FBI office, stealing documents that will expose Director Hoover's program, COINTELPRO, targeting black power leaders, the Communist Party, anti-war activists, environmentalists, animal rights groups, Native American activists, Puerto Rican independence groups, new left activists, feminists, of course, and homophiles. Included in those stolen documents, a floor plan of Fred Hampton's apartment, and a deal between the U.S. Deputy Attorney General and the FBI to cover up the Bureau's order to kill the activist. Finally, the public will come to learn of J. Edgar Hoover's decades of manipulation, spreading disinformation among activists, and planning informants inside these groups who turned leaders against each other. Hoover will be forced to finally shut down COINTELPRO, The next year, 1972, Director Hoover will testify before a congressional committee stating that no activists are allowed to join his FBI. He'll die in his sleep four days later. And his secretary will begin shredding files. Back in December 1969, Black Panther leaders bring Mattachine Midwest leaders to walk through Fred Hampton's apartment. They see the wall above Fred's bed covered in bullet holes. His pregnant fiancé was sleeping next to him. The Panthers and Chicago Gay Liberation release a joint statement, reported on by the Chicago Sun-Times. The Black Panthers are getting support from a surprising source, the Mattachine Midwest, a society for homosexuals. Mattachine Midwest calls for prosecution of the officers who killed Hampton and Clark. Some Chicagoans can't bear to read about all these gay groups in the news. The prosecutor of the Chicago 7, the activist charged with conspiracy to incite a riot at the 1968 DNC, the prosecutor from that case is running for Illinois governor and giving a speech at Loyola. We're losing our kids to the freaking fag revolution. And Chicago Gay Liberation immediately prints the buttons. Freaking fag revolutionaries. Chicago's gay community has become more tenacious than ever. Mattachine Midwest newsletter editor David Steenecker starts reporting on a Chicago police officer who has been cruising a Lincoln Park restroom waiting to flirt with men and then arrest them. 
the blonde and muscular officer, whose real name is just too perfect, John Manley, he's already successfully entrapped several gay men in Lincoln Park. Well over a dozen. A young man goes into a restroom to relieve himself. You know, urinate? Officer Manley lurks behind a door. Zap. Young man is arrested. John Manley is also the officer who killed Jerome Johnson, a 15-year-old Native American boy, the night before the Democratic National Convention in 68. Using the same stop-and-quiz initiative with which he stopped Jerome Johnson, Manley can stop any man he wants in the park bathroom. Innocent-looking, Steenecker writes beside a photo of the cop in the Mattachine Midwest newsletter. Received too late for specifics, Two cases where Officer John Manley bloodied the heads of two straight guys he arrested and, allegedly, maced them while handcuffed. Manley is cute, blonde, and blue-eyed, about 5'7", and evidently has a gay way about him that is irresistible. Or at least one would think so, since everyone knows Chicago's finest don't entrap. If they did... Maybe Manley would be getting off on being employed to cruise in the public interest. On February 7th, 1970, Officer John Manley walks into Steenecker's apartment and pulls the Mattachine editor out of bed. He arrests David on charges of criminal defamation. Manley tells Steenecker that if he pleads guilty, he'll just get a slap on the wrist. But of course, the Mattachino knows better, and he fights the charges. The charges don't stick, but with all the press around it, and no laws protecting the jobs of gay people, David Steenecker is fired as editor at World Book Encyclopedia. Officer Manley's reputation will very slowly fall apart over the decades, as more stories come to light about his behavior toward women in the workplace. To hear the whole sordid tale from someone who was there, Listen to my bonus interview with my dear Judy Albert-Williams on my Patreon. Despite Mattachine Midwest's direct confrontation with the police, young militants still don't think the homophile group is acting radically enough. April 19th, 1970. Chicago's Mattachine Midwest holds their regular Sunday evening meeting at the Second Unitarian Church on Westbury Avenue in Lakeview, just blocks from a strip that will soon become a gay neighborhood full of its own complicated history. In the church in 1970, a circle of Mattachinos is seated, discussing some upcoming events as young radicals in hippie clothes rush into the meeting. The revolution belongs to the Gay Liberation Front. Flyers are handed out to the Mattachinos, inviting them to join a less reserved form of activism. I am ready to die for the cause. One Mattachino is so very much disturbed by the disruption that they call the FBI later that night to report the incident. Chicago gay liberation does take the lead in activism, as Mattachine fades. Mattachine Midwest will launch a referral hotline for gay men and women to call. They can find counseling and legal, medical, religious, and employment help. They become more of a social service for gays. Their hotline is super successful. It runs for 18 years. They go back to the original Mattachine purpose, 
discussion groups. This time particularly for gay alcoholics and for parents and friends of gay people. They also help gay Cuban immigrants settle in Chicago. In 1986, just before they disband, Mattachine Midwest will celebrate their 20th anniversary at a gala in the Midland Hotel, where they held their first meeting. Chicago Mayor Harold Washington will attend, as he encourages gay activists pushing for a human rights ordinance to protect jobs and prevent many other discrimination issues. That fight by those gay activists is also another wild story for the bonus pod, told to me by two of those activists. By the time Mattachine Midwest closes their doors, gay Chicago will look drastically different. Hey, Mattachinos. Yes, these are the final six episodes of Queer Serial, but don't worry. My Patreon will continue on after the show. I've got a slate of interviews lined up, many already recorded, and coming to you after the season is over. In the meantime, pop onto my Patreon for deeper dives into the research behind every episode. Recently, we looked at the Mattachine's phone call logs, which a lot of you loved. We looked at the Sir Pocket Lawyer book, mentioned in the show a few times. We've gone through Canadian homophile magazines, 1960s dirty gay coloring books, and the various erotic lesbian Belitis illustrations. Coming up, we'll look through Daughters of Belitis convention pamphlets and handwritten letters, letters and photos from the raid on California Hall, and some gay cruising guides. Check all that out, plus the bonus episodes and more, at patreon.com slash queer serial. Just click the link in the episode notes. We were thrilled by the violent uprising in Sheridan Square in which homosexuals put police on notice that they'd no longer accept abuse. Jack Nichols and Lige Clark, formerly of Washington's Mattachine, write in The Homosexual Citizen, their column in the magazine Screw. We hope that the young activists will read, study, and make themselves acquainted with all the facts which will help them to carry the sexual revolt triumphantly into the councils of the U.S. government, into anti-homosexual churches, into offices of anti-homosexual psychiatrists, into city government, into the state legislatures, which make our manner of lovemaking a crime. An employee reading the column at the Oscar Wilde bookshop, former photojournalist of the latter, Kayla Husen, gets an idea. She pitches a gay paper to Jack and Lige for Screw to publish, their own paper titled simply GAY in all caps. A word that has been our own secret code for so long, now blatant for the public to see. 25,000 copies of each issue are printed. They've come a long way since Kayla Husen's early silhouette covers on the latter, and Jack Nichols using a pseudonym on CBS. Kay writes articles, and she's the news editor for Gay. When it launches in December of 69, Gay is the first gay weekly publication in the country. Other writers include Randy Wicker, Lily Vincennes, and Dick Leish. There are nude photos of women and men, and, of course, ads placed looking for contacts. Very fun to read through. On the debut issue, Leish Clark poses in a white knit tank top for the cover. The opening letter by Leish and Jack explains the paper's purpose. 
Why, may it be asked, is it necessary to publish a newspaper which deals with the issues concerning the homosexual? Doesn't such a publication suggest gay segregation rather than integration with the world at large? The answer to this question lies in the repressive social fabric and in the currents of our times. Today's homosexual community is awakening as never before to the concept of sexual equality. Gay will act, in part, as a chronicle of this awakening, and will help to hasten the day when people relate to each other as people, rather than as homosexuals and heterosexuals. Liberation for gay people is defining for ourselves how and with whom we live, instead of measuring our relationships by straight values. The editors at Gay use artwork and jokes to lure in the reader, and suddenly they're learning about political issues. Still court jesters. For instance, one issue publishes the following poem. He's off to seek an offender without wearing his Alice Blue gown. He won't even display tin jewelry as he haunts every john in town. His name is Polly Policeman. He's a dear, sweet, handsome young man who wags his privates at people as he waits in the stink of the can. That's more of a joke than a news story, but you get the idea. Jack sends issues of his hit publication to his mother, and she writes back. Tonight, I read the issues you sent. I'm ever so pleased with much that you've published, and the editors speak. But as a friend said about topless dancers, you see, too, you've seen them all. I don't approve of some of the pictures and can't see the reason for some of the four-letter words. I approve of your aims, but question the means of achieving your end. Pardon the pun. I'm happy that things are going so well and that you're so enthusiastic. So good luck, dear ones. You do your things well, and I'm proud of you. The picture of you was good. Keep your clothes on. It's cold. Much love. Jack prints her letter in Gay. And just when you think it doesn't get any better than that, the paper picks up steam. Gay will even feature Bette Midler's first print interview after Jack and Lige see her perform at the Continental Baths. Bette Midler will be on their cover three times. By 1971, Jack and Lige will reach a new level of fame. Their friend, Dr. George Weinberg, who will coin the term homophobia, he introduces them to a publisher to write a memoir about their activism and their relationship. One evening together, Jack says to Lige, I have more fun with you than anybody. So that's what they call their book. It'll be published in 72, the same year Kayla Husen and Randy Wicker publish theirs, Gay Crusaders, a series of interviews with activists of the gay movement though Randy will insist Kay wrote the book herself. He just lent his name to support her. Kay keeps plenty busy before writing her book. In 1970, as the New York Gay Liberation Front disintegrates into schisms, a new group forms with Kay in a leading role. The Gay Activists Alliance forms to focus specifically on gay issues, not to take on all the problems of the world. They create a legal committee and return to Robert's Rules of Order to choose their leaders. Members include Marsha P. Johnson, Arthur Bell, Arthur Evans, and Sylvia Rivera, who attends every meeting, she's always wanting to protest, and she gets arrested all the time. GAA's logo is the Lambda, symbolizing an exchange of energy. Check out the photos, you'll see the Lambda everywhere. 
March 5th, 1970, the Gay Activist Alliance heads to City Hall. John Lindsay remains mayor, having defeated Procaccino and Markey. The GAA now demands Mayor Lindsay's public support in fighting job discrimination and stopping the police harassment of gay people. As the GAA heads towards City Hall, the mayor and the press are tipped off. The Gay Activist Alliance exits the subway, and reporters and photographers surround them. The activists carry their signs to City Hall, where police are waiting. The GAA tries to push in, but barricades are going up around City Hall. They picket for hours. They talk to the press, getting coverage on major stations and papers. Gay couples kiss for the TV cameras. A guitar player improvises songs about gays and the little piggies that protect City Hall. Finally, Mayor Lindsay's advisor, Michael Donson, comes out and talks with them. I assure you, the mayor is supportive of these issues and your progress. The days of backroom promises are done. We want public support. I will speak with the mayor and we'll be in touch shortly. Reporter Breck Artery is on the scene. Another young group in New York is the Gay Activists Alliance. We asked one of its leaders, Marty Robinson, what the purpose of the organization is. GA is utilizing nonviolent militancy to uh, secure what it wants, somewhat by hitting the system uh, below the belt rather than just trying to cut the rug out from under the system entirely. Three days later, March 8th, 1970, nine months after the Stonewall riots, the New York City police still haven't learned their lesson, including one officer in particular. Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine, who led the raid on the Stonewall, leads a new raid on the Snake Pit, a non-mafia basement gay bar in the village near the Stonewall. Inspector Pine is experiencing a familiar problem. People are gathering outside the raided bar. At the Stonewall, he released the customers and they formed a crowd. So tonight, he decides, in order to keep a riot from breaking out, he'll arrest everyone. 167 people are loaded into vans and taken to jail for dancing in a gay bar. Pine's pretty good at this now. He raided 17 Barrow Street in the Zodiac two nights before. Breck Artery is on the scene again. Of course, conditions for gay people have not changed much for the better in the past year, and police raids such as the one that triggered the Stonewall Uprising have continued, most notably at the Snake Pit, another village bar. Bob Kohler of New York's Gay Liberation Front says he thinks a repetition of the Stonewall riots is possible. At the police station, after the snake pet raid, 23-year-old Diego Vinales is particularly frightened. He's an Argentinian immigrant, and he's worried he might be deported, either because his visa is expired and or because he's gay. A snake pet employee sees Diego as nervous and asks a cop, what rights do we have? Shut your fucking mouth. The snake pit customers are held in the police station for a long time. Cops are repeatedly calling them faggots and threatening them. Finally, Inspector Pine comes out into the chaos. 
ID will not be checked and no one will have to pay bail. Over the nearly 200 people he arrested, chattering in the police station, Diego either doesn't hear Pine or doesn't understand him, primarily being a Spanish speaker. Absolutely terrified of being deported, Diego sees a staircase and runs. He finds a window on the second story to escape through and jumps toward the neighboring rooftop. He misses and lands on the iron-spiked fence below. Six spikes pierce his abdomen. Diego can't be removed from the fence, so firemen have to cut a section of the bars out, and he's sent to the hospital. One of the cops tells the fireman not to hurry, because if he's not dead, he will be soon anyway. The police are so busy with Diego Vinales that some of the other arrested snake pit guests somehow get into the captain's office and get on the phones. They call all the major papers, Only one shows up. The Daily News sends out a photographer immediately, who snaps a shot from the window of Diego on the fence. The Snake Pit patrons also call the Gay Activists Alliance. Can they help? And, just for fun, they grab a few record books from the captain's office and drop them down the trash chute. Diego is barely surviving, but word spreads that he's died. Inside the jail, the arrested begin to sing we shall overcome. The Gay Activist Alliance and the Gay Liberation Front gather outside the police station with flyers they're passing through the village. Any way you look at it, that boy was pushed. We are all being pushed. Fighting gays and any of you who call yourselves human beings with guts to stand up to this horror, gather at Sheridan Square tonight, March 8th at 9, to march on the 6th Precinct. Stop the raids. Defend your rights. There will be a death watch vigil at St. Vincent's immediately after protest. We must all come. There is only the truth to guide us. Hundreds gather at the park, chanting, Say it loud, gay is proud. They march from the park to the hospital, where Diego Vinales lies in a coma. Villagers join the march as they chant down the streets, stopping at the 6th Precinct. TPF officers in helmets surround the building with hundreds of uniformed police officers and plainclothes cops. The crowd chants for the captain to come out, We want Salmieri. He doesn't come out, so they chant, Who gets the payoff? The police get the payoff. The police refuse to meet with leaders from the gay community. GAA does their best to keep the crowd calm and move on to Diego's vigil. They light candles and march silently. Fortunately, Diego Vinales will live. The New York Daily News prints their front-page photo of him, impaled on the fence. Congressman Ed Koch says the police commissioner Howard Leary approved these raids on the village gay community, and Leary is just reassigned to Brooklyn. Only ten days later, another protest this time outside the ladies' home journal offices in response to their stereotypical portrayals of women. 200 activists from several groups hold a sit-in for 11 hours. A big protest with big results. Not only are the activists later paid to write a feminist supplement for the journal, but the following week, 46 women at Newsweek file sexual discrimination suits against their own magazine. The dominoes are falling. 
All these stories spread quickly throughout the city, especially the ones with grisly photos. People are becoming more aware that their personal lives are directly affected by their political lives. Go to a gay bar, get arrested, get spiked. People are demanding a revolutionary change in power. The Gay Activists Alliance decides that anyone in power who allows oppression over gay people will no longer be protected in their personal lives. The mayor and his advisor have yet to respond to the activists as he promised, so the alliance decides that every time Mayor Lindsay steps into public, they'll be there. April 13th, 1970. New York Mayor John Lindsay speaks on the front steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art for its 100th anniversary. The crowd listens as someone walks up the steps toward Mayor Lindsay. GAA's Marty Robinson grabs the microphone. When are you going to speak out on homosexual rights, Mr. Mayor? Officers pull Marty from the podium. Lindsay goes on. At the end of the speech... Guests line up to shake Mayor Lindsay's hand. Martha Shelley extends her hand. Why aren't you supporting gay rights, Mr. Mayor? Please. Please, take my flyer. She holds his handshake so long, the police remove her. Mayor Lindsay goes inside to tour the museum. The mayor quietly looks over the artwork. Beautiful, isn't it? Yes, it is. You have our leaflet. Now when the hell are you going to speak to homosexuals? GAA's Jim Owls. That night, the mayor and his wife attend Romeo and Juliet at the Metropolitan Opera. It's opening night. Everyone is taking their seats, except a few men and women in tuxedos and gowns, who are standing up in the audience, turned toward the mayor for their long-awaited response. Zaps become the signature move of the Gay Activist Alliance, more political theater. The GAA keeps people talking, and they're able to catch government officials off guard, on the spot, in public, so they get honest responses. Two days after that opera, GAA Sylvia Rivera is arrested while she's petitioning for gay rights on 42nd Street. She's in what she calls scare drag, a little hair and mascara, so she's booked for wearing fewer than three items of clothing belonging to her legally assigned gender. Nothing new for her. The cops said leave or be arrested, so Sylvia said, well, fine, arrest me. A few days later, WNYC fills their studio with a small audience. They have tickets to see a half-hour show that tapes three hours before airtime. A news show with guests talking local issues called This Week with Mayor Lindsay. Advisor to the mayor, Michael Donson, stops one of the audience members walking in. Arthur Bell from the Gay Activist Alliance. I see you have some of your people here. Why haven't we heard from you? I didn't know I was to get back to you. Let's get together next week and talk. We've left several messages with you and the mayor. I've been over my head with work, but I'm eager to meet with your people. I'll tell my secretary to set something up. What are your people planning here? What do you mean? 
How many members of your group are here? Here? How much of this audience is your group? I really should take my seat, Mr. Donson. The opening music plays, which, as historian David Carter points out, is providentially Something's Coming from West Side Story, a song written by two gay men. Mayor Lindsay walks out. His hands are stuffed into his pockets, and it's clear he's nervous. His staff must have told him that gay activists are here. He crosses and uncrosses his legs over and over. His guest is an ecologist who talks while the mayor fidgets through the whole interview. As the guest is answering a question from the mayor, Arthur Evans and another activist rush the stage. Let that man speak. Homosexuals want an end to job discrimination. Security takes them away. The audience stomps together, chanting, Answer the question. Answer the question. Answer the question. Are you in favor of repeal of the sodomy laws? Gate power. The show comes to a stop. My counsel, Michael Donson, will meet with those who want to see him outside. Listen up, audience. You cannot disrupt a public meeting under threat of arrest. You either leave in peace or are under arrest. Lindsay is phony as hell. He has to read off of tapes. He can't answer questions unless he has prepared answers. Now he's threatening arrest? Of course, Mr. Mayor. When the city considers what to do with abandoned cars... What about abandoned homosexuals? The show stops again, and the activist is removed from the studio. Mr. Godfrey, in the case of one-way bottles... What about a one-way mare? Non-returnable. Jim Owls is removed. He gives a V for victory sign to the audience. If you're stuck in a traffic jam, it's illegal to blow your horn. It's illegal in New York to blow anything. (laughs) By the end of the show, 38 gay activists are revealed to have been scattered in the audience, wearing their own clothes rather than the Lambda logo, including Kayla Husen. GAA members were writing in for tickets to the show for weeks. In New York, the Gay Activist Alliance has begun to confront politicians openly on the streets. They attempted to ask questions of Arthur Goldberg, the Democratic candidate for governor, during a campaign stop at 86th Street and Broadway in Manhattan. When Goldberg refused to respond to the gay people's questions, they proceeded to shout him down and drive him away. The demonstrators surrounded his car and protested his silence. Crime of silence! Crime of silence! Crime of silence! Crime of silence! You're a pig! You're a pig too, mister! You're a pig too, you know it! You're a pig too! You're a fucking Nazi, baby! The Gay Activist Alliance finally gets their meeting with the mayor's office, including the deputy mayor, his chief counsel, and the NYPD's patrol chief. Arthur Bell and Kayla Husen are there to cover the meeting for their publications, Gay and Gay Power. The deputy mayor says he doesn't like these public confrontations. There'd be no need if the mayor would speak publicly about gay issues. Here are our demands. A moratorium on police raids and harassment to give time to the authorities to work on solutions to the underlying problems of the state liquor authority and police department corruption. The police chief winces. Arthur Bell says, Since the raids on the Stonewall and the Snake Pit and the resulting riots, homosexuals will no longer sit back and take shit from the police. 
One of the reasons we're here is to forewarn you that spontaneous riots might break out again this summer if police harassment continues. Seymour Pine has been transferred back to Brooklyn. It's not the policy of the police department to harass homosexuals per se. There is harassment with legal basis and there is harassment for intimidation. This last type of harassment must stop immediately. We will not tolerate it. Often police direct verbal abuses at homosexuals that are disgusting. We demand that a directive go out that this police practice stop. The Stonewall Anniversary Committee has been denied a permit from the city to hold their Christopher Street March in June. Finally, they're also invited to the mayor's office to speak with a representative. Craig Rodwell and Ellen Broidy and the rest of the committee, mostly women, enter the meeting to see the head of every precinct they intend to march through in June, and also the head of the Parks Department, and Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine. He sits quietly, glaring at them throughout the meeting. One cop asks Craig, Will there be female impersonators at your march? Craig says, They're a part of our community. The cop says, Well, there are laws. Craig says, There are thousands of laws on the book you don't enforce. So, in the name of human decency, just give them one day. The cop says, We can't guarantee the laws won't be enforced. The permit for the June march is granted, but there is no certainty there won't be another riot. Hi girls, this is an ad break, but it's still me talking. I want to tell you about another thing you'll find on my Queer Serial Patreon page. For $1 a month, you can join me and legendary last living Mattachino, Randy Wicker, in his home as we dive into his personal archives. He's lived in his apartment since 1976, shortly after his time with the Mattachine, the Sex Freedom League, and Lamar for legalizing marijuana. You've heard a lot of his story on the podcast, but there's so much more. I'm doing weekly posts on my Patreon as we organize his archives together before donation. We are showing off each fabulous era of his activism, including his legendary counterculture button shop in the village, his marriage to his longtime boyfriend, his roommates, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, his antique and lighting store staffed by his gay family, his campaign with Marsha to remove corruption from the Pride March, Take Back the Day, his incredible annual Christmas letters that you gay history nerds are going to live for, and even his days as a cloning activist in the 90s. There is so much to Randy Wicker that I couldn't cover on the podcast, and you can see all the fabulous and often filthy photos and activism on my Patreon for $1 a month. Take a peek at it on my Instagram and see the whole thing at patreon.com slash queer serial. There's a little link in the episode notes. 
May 1st, 1970. The National Organization for Women, now, holds their second Congress to unite women in Manhattan. This feminist organization was created by feminine mystique author Betty Friedan. At the first Congress to unite women, Betty Friedan did quite the opposite by leaving out the Daughters of Belitis as a sponsor. You might recall DOB's own founders, Dell and Phyllis, quit the homophile movement to join Friedan's group. Friedan said the mannish, man-hating lesbians would set the feminist movement back. She said lesbians in the feminist movement are a lavender menace. But the next gathering goes on as planned, also intending to overlook the lesbian feminists. A speaker takes the stage as 300 women listen in the audience. The lights go out. The microphone's plug is pulled by GLF member Michaela Griffo. Carla J stands up in the audience. Running footsteps echo down the two aisles. The lights come back up, revealing the aisles filled with 17 lesbians in t-shirts reading Lavender Menace. One of them is Martha Shelley. They hold up signs. Women's liberation is a lesbian plot. You're going to love the Lavender Menace. Carla, in the middle of the audience, unbuttons her long-sleeved red top and pulls it off, revealing her lavender shirt too. I'm tired of being in the closet because of the women's movement. She joins the others in the aisles. Rita Mae Brown shouts, Who wants to join us? I do. I do. Rita Mae Brown then pulls off her Lavender Menace t-shirt to reveal another one underneath. (laughs) They pass around mimeographed copies of their 10-paragraph manifesto, The Woman Identified Woman, and they take the stage. As the original organizers of the event try to take the mic back, the audience boos them off and lets the lesbians run the show. This event originally had no open lesbians on their program. Now they hold the floor for two hours of discussion. When it's over, gay and straight women head to an all-women's dance together. The group of activists who zapped the Women's Congress names their group the Radical Lesbians, all one word, and their manifesto explains what a lesbian is. A lesbian is the rage of all women, condensed to the point of explosion. At the following NOW conference, the members will adopt a resolution for the rights of lesbians to be considered a legitimate concern for feminism. The lesbian activists were between two difficult choices. Keep trying to deal with the male-dominated groups, or force themselves into the homophobic women's group. They'd already dealt with the homophile groups for two decades. DOB's Rita Laporte writes in the latter, We lesbians want first-class citizenship, and you homosexuals are the last to care about that. I predict that only as women come to be accepted as fully human, Will you gay guys be accepted? She goes on. It tends to be said over and over again that the real gap within humanity is that between men and women, not that between homosexual and heterosexual. When all the homosexuals, male and female, have their rights as homosexuals, we lesbians will have all the rights that women have. And then, uh, Frank Kameny weighs in. You seem to forget that the lesbian is, first and foremost, subject to all 
yes, all of the problems of the male homosexual and with no special problems as a lesbian. If one is a Negro homosexual or a Jewish homosexual, one may well fight racism and anti-Semitism as well as fighting anti-homosexuality. One's two battles are far better and far more effectively fought totally separately. This is Kameny's final letter, published by the latter. Meanwhile, editor Gene Damon calls for DOB members across the nation to start their own chapters, break off from the mainstream movement. That appears to be the best way to organize. She's already announced 1969 as the year of the chapter, and she encourages readers to open their local chapters by using her Belitis publication to spread a feminist message in their towns. Focus on feminism now in order to lift up lesbians. Kameny then writes to her. To say that male homosexuals and lesbians have less in common than almost any two groups is one of these statements which is just so far out of this world, so utterly detached from reality, and so far off the deep end, that I am quite unable either to take it seriously or to reply to it. I feel that by your views you are backing yourself off into an unfortunate corner of total unreality and total irrelevancy to the real world of here and now. I know that I have written exceedingly strongly here and hope that it will not destroy or damage the good personal and working relationship which we have, but I was really quite incredulous at reading your remarks. Latter editor Gene Damon replies, I can no more separate being a lesbian from being a woman than you can separate being a male homosexual from the fact that you are a man. You are just as convinced that our battles are the same as I am they are not. The thing here, though, is that from your viewpoint as a member of the current master race, it is logical, sensible, and wholly right. From my viewpoint as a second-class citizen, the handicaps are dual and not separable. Since yours is single and mine double, you really do not know how you would feel or act in some circumstances. The latter writers cover issues like these and the new generational gap. Rita Laporte notes that when once many homophiles fought for acceptance based on their similarities to heteros... Now, enter the young, the new morality, the belief that the individual has the right to be different. Basic to this attitude is the assertion that the larger society cannot legitimately dictate the life patterns or social habits of its individual members. A vested interest in nonconformity. Some folks write in, discouraging the young radicals, particularly those that broke into the DOB's New York office to use the Mimeo machine to print flyers for the snakehole protest. One lesbian writes, Their excuse was dire circumstances justify dire means. An especially annoying fact is that they had every opportunity to ask for permission to use the machine, and they didn't. In spite of real anger, it was all the New York chapter could do to vote to censure the offenders. And there were many who proposed forgiveness on the grounds that we're all in the same thing. What this thing is that we're all in, I wish someone would tell me. Lesbians should tend their own garden and stop squandering their resources. But even still... Rita Mae Brown has concerns bigger than their own infighting. She wants them to focus on the real problems. In this same latter issue, she writes, Our struggle is against the male power system, which is a system of war and death. 
If in the process of that struggle, we are forced to mutilate, murder, and massacre those men, then so it must be. But simultaneous with that struggle, we must also struggle to build a culture of life and love. To love without role, without power plays, is revolution. I believe these are our goals. In the middle of the day, a woman walks into the Daughters of Belita's San Francisco office, finding no one there. She goes for the filing cabinets. She collects the magazine's correspondence with women all over the country, grabs copies of every single issue of the latter, and she collects the magazine's production tools. And most importantly, she takes the magazine's mailing list. She cleans out the latter office, packs it all up, and vanishes. Who would do this, everyone wonders? The FBI? The cops? Would a lesbian do this, they wonder? Until one day in August 1970, when the subscribers check their mail. A new issue of the latter. Inside the magazine, the writers reveal the truth of the latest homophile heist, Replacing the original Daughters of Belita's statement of purpose is a new, bold manifesto. The latter, published by lesbians and directed to all women seeking full human dignity, had its beginning in 1956. It was then the only lesbian publication in the U.S. It is now the only women's magazine openly supporting lesbians, a forceful minority within the women's liberation movement. Initially, the latter's goal was limited to achieving the rights accorded heterosexual women, that is, full second-class citizenship. In the 1950s, women as a whole were as yet unaware of the oppression. The lesbian knew, and she wondered silently when her sisters would realize that they too share many of the lesbian's handicaps, those that pertained to being a woman. Latter editor Barbara Greer, a.k.a. Jean Damon, and Rita Laporte have hijacked the publication. Rita writes from the magazine's new office, her home in Reno, Nevada. With this issue, the latter, now in its 14th year, is no longer a minority publication. It stands squarely with all women, that majority of human beings that has known oppression longer than anyone. To raise all women to full human status with all of the rights and responsibilities this entails, to include all women, whether lesbian or heterosexual. Occupations have no sex and must be open to all qualified persons for the benefit of all. Lifestyles must be as numerous as human beings require for their personal happiness and fulfillment. Ability, ambition, talent, these are human qualities. Original and early daughters, Barbara Gidding, Stella Rush, Helen Sandoz, Del Martin, and Phyllis Lyon, call it a theft. An inside job in the works for a while. The evidence? The address on the magazine's masthead was changed too early, a month before the heist, they notice, to a P.O. box in Reno. Rita will believe she's saving the latter, but the magazine will fold in 1972. At the 1970 DOB convention in New York, the daughters will mourn the loss of their magazine, and Phyllis Lyon will take the stage for a speech 
about the infighting they're still caught up in. The lesbians' lot today is tied up with two movements, the feminist movement and the homophile movement. The lesbian's dilemma is that while she may offer her services and her loyalties to both, she is rarely, truly accepted in either. Barbara Giddings will add that gay men and women will need to cooperate in order to move this cause. No one is going to do it for us. The Los Angeles DOB reports after the convention, Things are indeed looking up for DOB of today and tomorrow. Yesterday has been thoroughly buried. Thoroughly. So, Shirley and Marion's plan to take Belitis to a local level, back in episode 9, is effectively established. Belitis founder, Del Martin, is ready to bury her past and move on too. At that 1970 NACO meeting, described as the battle that ended the homophile movement, with all the rifts between new and old activists, Dell had her eye on other rifts going unacknowledged. Rifts between the genders. She watched as the Sir president called for unity, inviting activists to come forward and join hands at the head table, but he only called out the names of men to join him. No women at all. It was the final straw for Del Martin. She'll stop writing her police beat column for Sir's Vector magazine, and she'll drop her membership. Instead, she writes an essay denouncing the male domination of the movement, and titles it, If That's All There Is. It'll basically go viral in the homophile community. There is no hate in this goodbye, only the bitter sting of disappointment. Momentarily, I am pregnant with rage at your blindness and your deafness, the psychosomatic symptoms of narcissism and egocentricity, but my rage will pass. Most of it has been spent already, for I realize you were programmed by society for your role of supremacy, but somehow I expected more of you. I had hoped that you were my brothers and would grow up to recognize that freedom is not self-contained. You cannot be free until you free me and all women, until you become aware that in all the roles and games you play, you are always it. Believe it or not, there is love too in this farewell. How could anyone hold a grudge against helpless beings who are compelled to grope for their very existence? Besides, I must go where the action is, where there is still hope, where there is possibility for personal and collective growth. It is a revelation to find acceptance, equality, love, and friendship Everything we sought in the homophile community, not there, but in the women's movement. Even Jean Damon and Rita Laporte, in their new version of The Ladder, will reprint the essay aimed at gay men. Those were stultifying roles you laid on me, and I shall no longer concern myself with your toilet training. You're in the big leagues now, and we're both playing for big stakes. As I bid you adieu, I leave each of you to your own device. Take care of it, stroke it gently, mouth it, and fondle it. As the center of your consciousness, it's really all you have. Dell and Phyllis will stay in the National Organization for Women, and Dell will be the first open lesbian elected to the board. 
1972, they'll jointly write a book about their experiences as activists and about the myths of lesbianism called Lesbian Slash Woman, published by Glide Publications of Glide Memorial Church in the Tenderloin. Dell will also publish the book Battered Wives about spousal abuse, and she'll open the first battered women's shelter in San Francisco as Phyllis continues to work for Glide Memorial. The Daughters of Belitis will officially end in 1978 as interest declines. The treasury will be sent back to where it began, Dell and Phil's house. They'll give the money to the San Francisco Women's Centers for their new building, the Women's Building, still operating 40-plus years later. Dell and Phil will get a truck and head to the DOB office, packing up the remaining 23 years of letters from all over the world, address lists of the many chapters, ladder sales records, convention minutes and programs, newspaper and magazine clippings, and store them in Phyllis's office at Glide, until donating them to the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, where I and many other historians will get to pick them up and read their words and experience the movement all over again. They'll go on to serve on the San Francisco Commission on the Status of Women, appointed by Mayor Moscone, focusing on racial discrimination and civil rights of gay women. They'll also co-found the Alice B. Toklas Democratic Club, with Sir co-founder Jim Foster and DOB member Beth Elliott, who was voted out of DOB for being a trans woman, by the way. The Toklas Club will be the first gay Democratic club in the U.S., but controversial for being rather moderate, but put a pin in that until the upcoming new queer serial sister series. Stay tuned. Dell and Phyllis will later serve on the White House Council on Aging, and in February 2004, they'll become the first gay couple to legally marry in San Francisco. After the state voids marriages later that year and California deals with Proposition 8, Dell Martin and Phyllis Lyon will again be the first gay couple to marry in 2008. USA Today will report, The pair never felt the need to get married, but they did it for the same reason they became domestic partners, to speak out. Carol Greetzer. Do you refuse to represent us in city council? Back in 1970, the Gay Activist Alliance zaps their city councilor at the Village Independent Democratic Club. She has refused to see their petitions. Tell them I have a terrible cold. I didn't refuse those petitions. I had too many things to carry. Is there a specific piece of legislation you're talking about? The job discrimination bill. My stand is there is no way to getting this through, not even with bombs. The very least we expect is a commitment, Miss Greetzer. You've never issued a position statement about homosexuals. You are guilty of a crime of silence. You're guilty of a crime of silence. Guilty of a crime of silence. Will you back us up? Yes. Will you co-sponsor a bill? Yes. Do you accept the petitions? Yes. If you have legitimate grievances, I will see to it they are forwarded to the right party. We want Governor Rockefeller to come out and fight for homosexual rights. Rockefeller is guilty of a crime of silence, and we are not leaving until we get a satisfactory answer to our demands. Live loud, 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 live loud
While the pickets chatted on the sidewalk, several members of the GAA were staging a sit-in demonstration in the offices upstairs. The GAA sits in at the Republican State Committee headquarters, June 24, 1970, four days before the Christopher Street March. You did not call for an appointment. You have not made a legitimate request. The activists sit down on the floor of the waiting room. Downstairs on the ground in Midtown, GAA's picket line holds hands and kisses and hugs for the cameras. Every 30 minutes, a sit-in representative comes downstairs to update the picketers and TV and newspaper reporters. One of the members of the sit-in contingent, Arthur Evans, came downstairs at one point to explain that the demonstrators had met with a representative of the committee who had refused to give them an appointment with Governor Rockefeller or any other high official. The only thing he said he would do is pass on, pass the buck. We have approached the Republican State Committee because the governor has made himself inaccessible to the people of the state of New York. The only thing he said he could do was to pass the buck. Pass the buck. That's all homosexuals have been getting in this state since this state has been founding. Nobody represents homosexuals. All they do is pass the buck. We are going to sit in until somebody of importance comes to talk to us about our demands. And if they don't come to talk to us, we're going to have to send the cops in to drag us out because gay power is here to stay and nobody, nobody is going to ignore us any longer. Republicans in the state committee headquarters can hear the picketers all the way upstairs and when they look down, they can see the huge crowd forming around their building. It's impossible to ignore the sit-in either, especially because it's 5 o'clock and they want to close the offices. At 6.30, finally, the chair of the New York Republican Party agrees to meet with the GAA representative. Jim Owls requests the press come along for the meeting, but the Republicans refuse. So Jim refuses too. That's when the police arrive. Arthur Evans, Jim Owls, Phil Raya, Marty Robinson, and Tim Doyer are arrested for criminal trespass. As they're taken away, the picketers cheer. At their arraignment, 40 GAA members stand up and hold hands as the arrested activists enter the courtroom. The room bustles with press. The charges will later be dismissed. Marty Robinson was asked what purpose all of this political confrontation serves. So far we've zapped enough political, uh, important political people that we're getting a fair employment law introduced by Minority Leader of the City Council, Eldon Klingen, to the council in the next week. Well, we met a little resistance from Councilwoman Greitzer in... Uh, in asking her to place law before the city council, uh, we confronted the v Mr. Scribes at a meeting of the Village Independent Democrats. Took over the meeting, raucously demanded that she uh, repent, as it were, and uh, change her tune, which she did publicly, <clears throat> and uh, said with several other politicos present who uh, took up the banner immediately and decided to introduce two bills. One is a fair housing law, law by Carter Burden, and the other one is a fair employment law, an anti-closet law. Uh, being introduced by the minority leader, Eldon Klinger. I think we're going to get back at everybody who testifies against us. The Rockefeller Five, as they're called, are the first people to ever be arrested for a gay sit-in. Many more will be arrested in the following years, especially as ACT UP goes on to stage their famous zaps all over New York City. The Gay Activist Alliance will also zap St. Patrick's Cathedral, the New York City Taxi Commission, the American Psychiatric Association, the New York Daily News offices, the Board of Education offices, a few district attorney's offices, ABC and CBS News, even the Dick Cavett Show, to the point where 
Dick Cavett has to give GAA time to speak on the air. The GAA also demonstrates in Times Square to protest police harassing trans women and sex workers. When an agency called Fidelifax is revealed to be collecting information for employers on gay applicants, saying that if they look like a duck and quack like a duck, they need to be noted as homosexual, the GAA will arrive to picket, complete with Marty Robinson in, of course, a duck costume. When Harper's Magazine publishes an offensive article on homosexuality, guess who holds a sit-in at their offices? When a city clerk in the Marriage Bureau makes insulting comments about gays wanting to marry, the Gay Activist Alliance shows up and takes over the phones. Yes, we took over the office and we're having a great party. Why don't you come down? Wedding cake. Free marriage license. We're giving out our marriage license is free. We have a wedding cake here. It's really great. This office has been liberated. Oh, this is definitely the Marriage Bureau, uh, but it's been taken over by the Gay Activist Alliance. Your mother and dad want to get married? Are they gay? Oh, I'm sorry, we can't help you. Randy Wicker filmed it. Check it out on my Patreon. Soon after that, GAA will also open the city's first gay community center in an old firehouse. In 1972, the GAA will get word that John Lindsay intends to announce his campaign to run for U.S. president at a fundraising event at Radio City. Naturally, the activists purchased 10 tickets. The government likes to harass gay bars during election seasons to score points, so the gays want to score a few back this time. Radio City is packed with public officials and press, and since they've become well-known, the GAA activists show up in actual disguises. John Lindsay takes the stage. Morty Manford runs to the mezzanine near all the reporters. Homosexuals need your help! Morty handcuffs himself to the railing. The gay activists stand up throughout the audience and they take out pocket alarms, the kind that are typically used in case of muggers. They pull out the pins, setting off the little alarms, and throw them into the audience while shouting their demands at Lindsay. The crowd erupts into pandemonium. Cops run to remove Morty from the mezzanine balcony, but he says he's tossed the handcuff key. It's actually in his vest pocket. Someone else enters the mezzanine wearing a raincoat. Security asks them what they want, and they improvise. Officer, I'm here to arrest that man. They're allowed onto the mezzanine, where they open their raincoat and pull out 2,000 flyers listing their demands. They toss them over the balcony railing, covering the Radio City audience. In all the chaos, John Lindsay leaves the stage, and the curtain drops. About a month later, the GAA will confront the mayor again outside a Broadway show. The mayor's wife finally loses it, kicking and hitting people around her as the mayor tries to hold her back. Mayor Lindsay will finally give in and issue a statement in favor of the city council bill prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation. The Gay Activist Alliance inspires tons of subsequent gay activist groups who will follow them, like ACT UP, and another group created by some of GAA's own members. It'll happen at Weinstein Hall at NYU in the fall of 1970. The organizers of the Stonewall Anniversary March, called the Christopher Street Liberation Day Committee, they will plan four dances at the hall to raise money for gay medical, housing, and legal funds. The university will cancel the gay events. GLF, GAA, and the Radical Lesbians hold a sit-in for five days. 
That's where Sylvia Rivera gets an idea as she watches gay activists abandon their people at the sit-in. On the fifth day, with only a few people left sitting in, riot police drag the remaining activists out of the hall. Mostly transgender people are left, with nowhere else to go. Sylvia Rivera writes up a flyer under a new group name, Street Transvestites for Gay Power. She asks, Gay power, when do we want it? Or do we? The question is, do we want gay power or pig power? All we fought for at Weinstein Hall was lost when we left upon the request of the pigs. You people run if you want to, but we are tired of running. We intend to fight for our rights until we get them. Sylvia and Marsha P. Johnson used to book cheap hotel rooms and sneak the street girls in. So they decide they'll get their own place to take the street queers in. A four-bedroom apartment in the East Village where Marcia and Sylvia hustle to pay the bills. They'll call it Star House. Street transvestite action revolutionaries. They'll also join the GAA in demonstrating for city council to pass the bill against gay discrimination. Here's Marcia. Hey, hey, what do you say? Pass the bill or you'll pay. Why are you here today? Darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time the gay brothers and sisters got their rights. And especially the women. How <laughs> will this affect you and your job? Darling, I don't have a job. I'm on welfare. I have no intentions of getting a job as long as this country discriminates against homosexuals. There's only homosexuals, bisexuals, and trisexuals, darling. And there's no straight people. Because yeah. they're just trying out women, honey. The assimilationist gay activists will compromise, 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 allowing trans people to be taken out of the bill. Starr's activity will dwindle, ending in 1973, at the fourth Stonewall anniversary, where Sylvia Rivera and Queen's Liberation Front founder Lee Brewster will be asked not to speak because drag apparently makes gays look bad. But Sylvia will force her way onto the stage and grab the mic. Just a moment, just a moment. Listen, we don't know what you want. Now, do you want these people to speak? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, please wait, please wait. Will the people who want it say yes? That's the end of the conversation. and tried to get their sex safe. The women have tried to fight 
for their sex changes are to become women of the women's liberation. And they write star, not the women's group. They do not write women. They do not write men. They write star because we're trying to do something for them. I have been to jail. I have been raped and beaten many times by men, heterosexual men that do not belong in the homosexual shelter. But do you do anything for them? No, you all tell me to go and hide my tail between my legs. I will not no longer put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. I do not believe in a revolution. But you all do. I believe in the gay power. I believe in us getting our rights or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to your people. If you all want to know about the people that are in jail and do not forget Bambi Lamore and Dora Marks, Kenny Messner, and other gay people that are in jail, come and see the people at Star House on 12th Street, on 640 East 12th Street, between B and C, apartment 14. The people that are trying to do something for all of us and not men and women that belong to a white middle class, white club, and that's what you all belong to. Revolution now! Give me a kiss! Sylvia Rivera will later say, in a famous speech near the end of her life, I'll be the first one to step on any organization, any politician's toes if I have to, to get the rights for my community. The movement still has a long way to go. After Star ends, Sylvia will leave the gay movement for years. She'll start Star again decades later, but let's put a pin in that for another day. In 1982, when Marsha P. Johnson is looking for somewhere to crash, a friend will invite her over to Hoboken to stay with an advocate reporter who is on the fence about this street-hustling queen. He's a former Mattachine activist who used to run a political button shop, Randy Wicker. Randy and Marsha immediately become very close. In his 1982 annual Christmas letter, Randy writes, I've taken in two roommates. One is a 37-year-old black transvestite hooker with an arrest record going back to 1963. That's Malcolm, but everyone calls her Marsha. 
That notorious black bitch. That common whore of the streets. She's been here for 11 months. When and where will it end? I hope never. And yes, this is a strange household, but I've never been happier. Marsha is happy too. She'll work in Randy's lamp shop, and she stays for the last decade of her life, until her death. But again, a story for another day. A decade after the former astronomer, Frank Kameny, requested his meeting with the Civil Service Commission, he'll finally get it in 1973. The same day he finally meets with the CSC, they'll announce that homosexuality will no longer be grounds for firing in the U.S. government. The court cases he's led against the CSC are wearing down on them. Kameny will become a District of Columbia Human Rights Commissioner, pushed into power by the GAA. A mere two months later, D.C. will eliminate the police department's morals division, the Queer Catchers. Frank will write to Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen, The war, which they have fought against the gay community since 1950, and against me personally since 1957, is over. We have won. Frank Kameny will go on to draft the bill that overturned sodomy laws, passed in 1993. He'll be the first openly gay candidate for Congress, and he'll found the Gay and Lesbian Alliance of Washington, D.C. In 2010, he will be invited to witness President Obama sign the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Frank Kameny will die a year later, October 11, 2011, on National Coming Out Day. Back in 1970, Barbara Giddings still doesn't feel quite as though she is one. Sure, steps have been made, but with doctors still diagnosing us as sick, there will always be these medical grounds for discrimination. GAA and STAR will hold demos outside Bellevue Hospital to protest shock therapy treatment on queers, once they even break in and sneak Marsha out, but these protests don't erase the diagnosis in the books. Barbara Giddings starts making new plans. First, she returns to the libraries, where all the books said she was sick. In 1970, she makes change from the inside. Barbara joins the American Library Association, networking her way into a small gay group and becoming their coordinator, a group called the Gay Task Force. She prepares a booth for the 1971 American Library Association convention in Dallas with a big sign saying, Hug a Homosexual. One side is women only, the other is men only. She waits behind her booth with author Alma Rautsong, who used to sell her lesbian book at DOB meetings. No one gets in line to hug them, so Barbara and Alma wave over some TV cameras and kiss for the crowd. The aisles pack with people, but still no one gets in line. 
Barbara and Alma pass out suggested gay bibliographies for the libraries. Most of the famous authors at the convention aren't even shown on TV, because the footage of Barbara and Alma takes the spotlight. It's shown on the news twice that night, and again in the morning. Over at the American Psychiatry Association convention that year, Kameny and other gay people are presenting a panel called Lifestyles of Non-Patient Homosexuals, which they jokingly call Lifestyles of Impatient Homosexuals. The previous year at the APA, gays in the audience got pissed about being called sick. They shouted things like, stop talking about us and start talking with us. And we're the people whose behavior you're trying to change. One panel on conversion therapy was heckled by gays like Barbara and Frank so loudly that it ended early. Quote unquote, Dr. Irving Bieber said at that convention, I never said homosexuals were sick. What I said was that they have displaced sexual adjustment. A protester shouted back at him, That's the same thing, motherfucker! GAA stormed the convention with Frank's help. He grabbed the mic and announced, Psychiatry is the enemy incarnate. Psychiatry has waged a relentless war of extermination against us. You may take this as a declaration of war against you. So the next year, in 71, Kameny says on his panel, We are rejecting you all as our owners. We possess ourselves, and we speak for ourselves, and we will take care of our destinies. All this speaking out at the APA leads Kameny and Giddings to hear word that there is a secret gay PA group that meets during these conventions. The next year, 72, Barbara, Kay, and Frank make big new plans that will change the queer movement again. Because of their demos and open conflicts at previous APA conventions, Barbara and Frank have been invited to speak on another panel, Psychiatry, Friend or Foe to Homosexuals, a Dialogue. Kay looked at the panel list and said, This isn't right. Here you have two psychiatrists pitted against two gays. What you really need is someone who is both. So, the APA agrees that if Kay and Barbara can find a gay psychiatrist, that doctor can join the panel. The activists dive into the underground world of the gay PA, writing letters and making calls across the country. And finally, one doctor agrees to talk, on one condition. Behind the scenes at the 72 convention, the activists put the doctor in an oversized tuxedo, a mask, a wig, and a voice-distorting microphone. You can see Kay Lahusen's photos of him on my Instagram at Queer Serial. They sneak him through the back corridors and out to the lecture hall stage. The place is packed. Barbara sits down and begins reading letters from other gay psychiatrists anonymously, explaining why they had to decline her offer to speak today. The disguised man, who they call Dr. H. Anonymous, explains to his colleagues why he is speaking behind a mask today. He says over 200 gay psychiatrists attend this event in the closet every year, and in their real lives they can't be seen with other gays or their career would be ruined. The audience is astounded. Dr. Anonymous has already been fired from a hospital for being gay and flamboyant. The person who fired him is sitting in the front row, not knowing it's him. In 1994, Dr. Anonymous will reveal his name, Dr. John Fryer. 
His speech is all anyone can talk about when they visit the exhibits afterward. While Dr. Anonymous goes on the radio for two hours, Frank, Barbara, and Kay set up their exhibit at the convention, a display called Gay, Proud, and Healthy, The Homosexual Community Speaks. There are photos of gay couples under the word love in big red letters. The activists hand out pamphlets. Doctors are shocked, asking Barbara, does this really work for you people? Another panelist from that event, Dr. Judd Marmer, has spent the past several years working with Dr. Evelyn Hooker, who ran that so-called Fairy Project, the first study of homosexuals. He agrees with her and the gay activists that gays are not sick. Marmer runs for APA president in 73, determined to remove homosexuality from their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The other two people running for president are determined to do the same. Just a year after Barbara, Kay, Frank, and Dr. Anonymous speak, the American Psychiatry Association votes 13 to 0 to remove homosexuality from the DSM. The so-called doctors, Socorides, and Bieber demand a referendum. Over 10,000 psychiatrists vote, and the decision stands. Gays are not sick. The January 1974 issue of Chicago's Gay Crusader hits the stands, announcing in an all-caps headline, 20 million gay people cured. Barbara Giddings will hold exhibits at the APA again in 76 and 78. Her last one will be called Gay Love, Good Medicine. While Barbara makes several TV appearances, like on Phil Donahue and David Susskind, Kay keeps taking photos. If you look through photos of the homophile movement or the early gay liberation movement, you're mostly looking at photos by Kay Lehusen and Diana Davies. Barbara will spend the next 16 years campaigning libraries to circulate positive gay and lesbian books and stop censoring our history. One day, the books will fill with Kay's photos. Barbara's Gay Task Force will become the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. She'll be awarded a lifetime membership with the American Library Association, and the ALA's annual award for the best gay or lesbian book will be renamed after Barbara Giddings. The first recipient of that award was Alma Routsong, the woman Barbara kissed at her first ALA booth. One of the largest collections of gay books at the Free Library of Philadelphia is also named after Barbara Giddings. In the early 90s, when author and historian Eric Marcus interviews Barbara and Kay for his book, Making History, Barbara says, However much we may now blend into the woodwork, and however desirable it may be for us to have as few barriers and obstacles as possible so that we are more like other people, we will always be a special people. There is something innately different about us. I prize it. I value it. Oh, sure, there are straight people I like, but I can't imagine not being gay. What would life have been like? Dull? Dismal? Decrepit? Kay talks to Eric about the idea of organizing a gay retirement home one day, saying, we're not actively working on that, but it is a twinkle in our eye. Barbara and Kay do end up pushing the American Association of Retired Persons to grant them a couple's membership, and they come out in their retirement home's newsletter. They organize a monthly gay dinner for residents, 
which you can listen to on Eric Marcus's podcast, Making Gay History. I'll link in the episode notes. The couple who met at a Daughters of Belitis gathering in the earliest days of the movement will stay together until Barbara's death in 2007. Kay Tobin Lehusen died earlier this year, in May 2021. Everything changed after the gay liberation movement began. When once there were boarded up bars with backroom dance floors, now there are gay discos. Lesbians met discreetly in living rooms, not allowed to draw suspicion by wearing pants, but now gather in convention halls, demanding doctors stop diagnosing them. Trans women met in hotel rooms and put on hose and heels simultaneously so as not to incriminate each other. The organizing was meticulously planned for their safety. Slowly, they educated themselves and the public until the movement gained enough momentum to be self-perpetuating, not run by a few individuals, but instead becoming an unstoppable force. No longer a series of meetings with rules and moderated behavior, but a series of events that were organic, spontaneous, combusting, and angry, not just educating their audience, but also demanding our freedom. After gay liberation sweeps the country, San Francisco's Twin Peaks Tavern on Castro is bought by lesbians who take the boards off the windows and, for the first time in the U.S., allow the public to see into a gay bar. An avant-garde psychedelic theater troupe called the Coquettes began performing genderfuck drag for huge audiences in the Bay. Dugan's Bistro, a massive disco, opens in Chicago in the former Tower Town, the neighborhood where Henry Gerber once organized the first gay rights group. The Bistro proudly advertises itself as home of the bearded lady, a legendary drag queen. John Waters, Bette Midler, and Diana Ross visit the outrageously gay club. The world begins to open up for queer people in ways it hasn't for centuries. But not until after those first brave steps in June 1970 on Liberation Day. In 1955, there were reports of a homosexual underworld in Boise, Idaho. The people of Boise tried to stamp out homosexuality. They discovered it couldn't be done. On Halloween 1955, a probation officer and a private eye sent the people of Boise into a panic. A newspaper fanned the flames, and the town gathered to decide how to eradicate their homosexuals. But they were just a piece in the game being played by the overfunded police and the upper class of Idaho. It's a small-town mystery and a true story in queer history about people with good morals. The year-long investigation that followed shook Boise to its foundations. Skipping town before they're entrapped in the park or caught by the doctor, Boise's homosexuals can't avoid setup after setup in an effort to take down the elusive queen, the supposed ringleader of Boise's gay underworld. Altogether, hundreds were interrogated in this house on a quiet residential street. In the learning process, 
everybody suffered. An all-new true serial in a new city with no Mattachine, no Belitis, and no one to turn to. Crush the monster. Infamous crimes. Crush homosexuality. An eight-episode limited series exclusively on Patreon at patreon.com slash queer serial, where you can find all sorts of queer history. Craig Rodwell is nervous about the police. The morning of the Stonewall Uprising's first anniversary, June 28th, 1970, he arrives early at Christopher Park, waiting outside the bar. Not very many people are here. Craig was the most critical of the Stonewall, knowing that the manager, the Skull, Ed Murphy, had been blackmailing wealthy gays and trafficking young queers likely by targeting them in his dumpy, hepatitis-ridden gay bar. Now the stone wall is shut down. Over the next couple decades, it'll become a bagel shop, a shoe store, a Chinese restaurant. The big stone wall sign will come down. It won't be until the 90s when the space reopens as a bar called Stonewall. Craig is happy to be rid of the bar. He's been pushing for his community to have better resources since he was too young to even join the Mattachine. He would stuff Mattachine flyers into mailboxes of gay people, and his boyfriend, young Harvey Milk, would say, You shouldn't do that to people. You'll make people paranoid that everyone knows they're gay. Craig replied, You're just thinking about how you would react if it showed up in your mailbox. After Craig opened his gay bookshop, using it to actively educate his community, Harvey went on to San Francisco and will open a camera store in the gay neighborhood on Castro Street. But let's put a pin in that, again, until the upcoming new Queer Serial Sister series. Craig waits with his banner outside Christopher Park, hoping enough marchers arrive to keep the police and the hecklers at bay. There is hope, though. Yesterday in Chicago, the very first march went well and was just met with dropped jaws through the former Tower Town. On Saturday, June 27th, about 200 Chicagoans met in Bug House Square, the old cruising ground known for public speaking. I want to welcome everybody here on behalf of Chicago Gay Liberation on this celebration day, part of Gay Pride Week. We're here because we're gay and we're proud that we are. If you don't think every guy that's picked up in a tea room isn't you, you're out of your mind. And if you don't think that every guy that gets busted in this park, that's got murdered being picked up in this park, getting robbed in this park, you're out of your mind. And all I got to say about this park is let's get the hell out of here and let's stop being those fucking kind of homosexuals who are hiding and let's get on to Michigan Avenue. Henry Wiemhoff, the student who placed the ad for gay roommates, also spoke to the crowd. Like we're told we're supposed to live lives that are honest and that are free. But the more we try and live lives that are honest and free, the more we get fucked over. But we're not going to accept anymore. And if the shit hits us because we're not going to accept it anymore, that's okay. Because we've taken the shit all, all of our lives anyway. And we can deal with it in an overt form as well as the kind of covert form we've had to take it. And I think we're the better for it. They held up their flags with two linked female symbols and two linked male symbols, and they marched to Daly Plaza, where they danced around the Picasso statue. Craig 
Onlookers were amazed, but not violent. Like the first pickets, these Chicago activists became immunized against fear. I've never gone on a march before, and I'll be damned if I've ever been in a movement before. But all of a sudden, something that touched the corner of my life and its inner core began to have some kind of meaning. And I have to say that I've got to be out here no matter what. Right I also consider myself very lucky to be gay. Right. Because, because we, don't, we don't have to listen to all the rhetoric that explains what's wrong with this sexist, racist society. We know. Right because we're gay, we can be the leaders in the revolution that is going to make this society a better place to live. Gay power. For the next march in 1971, Chicagoans will fill out their permit and ask for everything they can get. Floats, bands, animals, even a flea circus, just because they know they can ask for it. In five years, the city will have to shut down traffic for the Chicago march. The same day as Chicago's march, Saturday, a small group of about 30 people marched down Polk Street to San Francisco's City Hall. They'll also hold a gay-in on Sunday in Golden Gate Park. In a couple years, thousands will march in San Francisco alongside Del Martin, Phyllis Lyon, Empress Jose Saria, Hal Call, Street Queens, Castro Clones, and the vast, growing queer community. During that Sunday gay-in in Golden Gate Park, a couple thousand people in Los Angeles meet to march up Hollywood Divine, while a small crowd is beginning to form in New York's Greenwich Village with Craig Rodwell. A few eggs are thrown from buildings above Christopher Park, but as a community that has lived on the streets for centuries, it's nothing the gathering crowd can't handle. The marchers have been advised not to wear loose jewelry in case of attackers. One couple brings their dogs just in case a riot breaks out so they can slip away and say they were just out walking their dogs. Some people hang out on the sidewalks, not in the street yet, waiting to decide if it's safe to join. Suddenly, the crowd jolts forward, eager to get moving and avoid possible attacks, and the march begins, so quickly that some people will refer to the first march as the first run. The pace steadies, and thousands of people fill the street behind the banner, Christopher Street Gay Liberation Day. 1970. Behind the banner, there are members of the various surviving chapters of the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Elitis, Lavender Menace Radical Lesbians, Gay Liberation Front and Gay Activist Alliance members, the Old West Side Discussion Group, the Student Homophile League of Columbia University, Street Queens, Teens, and Stonewall Veterans, all marching together. New York passersby on the sidewalks stop and gawk in astonishment. There is no violence, only bewilderment. The Village Voice reports, No one could quite believe it. Eyes rolled back in heads. Sunday tourists traded incredulous looks. Wondrous faces poked out of air-conditioned cars. As they passed the Women's House of Detention at Greenwich and 6th, 
They chant. Kayla Husen and Diana Davies move through the crowd taking photos. Lily Vincennes does the same, shooting footage for her short documentary, some of which you're hearing in this episode. Can you tell me what you feel about the homophile movement? I think it's great. I think it's really dynamite. Marchers proudly lift their signs. I am a lesbian and I am beautiful. We are the people our parents warned us against. Hi, Mom. Frank Kameny holds up his sign. Gay is good. Soon, he'll write to his mother. Some 32 years ago, I told you that if society and I differ on anything, I will give society a second chance to convince me. If it fails, then I am right and society is wrong, and if society gets in my way, it will be society which will change, not I. It has been a guiding principle in my life. Society was wrong. I am making society change. The annual reminder pickets in Philadelphia are replaced with this massive march, and in 35 years, in 2005, a sign will go up outside Independence Hall in Philadelphia where those brave few once picketed. It will say, annual public demonstrations for gay and lesbian equality were held at Independence Hall. These peaceful protests in New York Stonewall riots in 1969 and Pride Parade in 1970 transformed a small national campaign into a civil rights movement. That same year, 2005, the federal government will ask Kameny for permission to display the picket signs from their protest outside of the White House and other federal buildings. Frank will say yes, of course, and will email Barbara Giddings and Kayla Husen, saying, I am not often at a loss for words, but as today sinks in, I find myself approaching that. This afternoon, Charles Francis and I went to the Smithsonian Institution's American History Museum on the Mall to effect formal delivery to them of 13 of our 1960s picketing signs, now a part of a large collection of American historical relics. That collection includes the small portable desk which Thomas Jefferson used for writing the first drafts of the Declaration of Independence, and the inkwells used by President Lincoln in the writing of the Emancipation Proclamation, and memorabilia from Martin Luther King's 1963 March on Washington. I was there. What do you think the reaction would have been in 1965 as a bunch of us scrambled around on our hands and knees on the poster board littered floor of someone's apartment, lettering those signs, had we been told that our work products would be honored and eventually displayed among the relics of Jefferson and Lincoln and King? It still hasn't fully sunk in. We have arrived irreversibly. The first march, born out of those pickets, is 15 blocks long in 1970. As they pass alternate U, they raised clenched fists, which the straight activists inside return from the windows in solidarity. As they move through Midtown, a woman opens her office window to throw streamers of film in celebration. The crowd cheers. Some marchers take off their shirts and dance in the sun. Knowing we're around and this, this is going on, I think it will, will increase their sense of gay pride. Uh, I think Lindsay should have made it a point to be here today. She called gay? Yes. 
for bisexuals myself. <laughs> Do you recommend it? Absolutely. That's where I think it's at. Can you tell me what you thought about Charlie Brown, the Sodom and Gomorrah guy carrying the American flag? He's a closet queen, and you can find him in Howard Johnson any night. And what color underwear does he wear? Pink. Thank you. Marching down a street is public resistance. Going to a gay bar is public resistance. Wearing what you want to wear on the train to work in the morning is public resistance. Choosing queer visibility anywhere you go, that's resistance against queer oppression. When you show your queerness, talk about it, write about it, share it with anyone, you keep the queer liberation movement moving. The conservative old maid of Mattachine that history books will generalize about, they would not have approved of this celebration, flaunting and forcing people to look at who we are. But before those conservative white men in suits took it over, Harry Hayes Mattachine Foundation first set out to start a movement that would embrace our differences from heterosexuals. Harry will say that the original document, The Call, his call to action, was a great transcendent dream of what being gay was all about, of breaking sexual norms and existing between genders. He'll say the neitherness is who we are, and the neitherness is our power. The conservatives who played it safe, putting on heterosexual society's uniform, suits for men and dresses for women, were also essential for the movement. Although their rules excluded trans people and the various gender-variant folks who pushed the movement forward through civil disobedience, the conservatives spoke to the stubborn hetero world directly through a mask the heteros recognized and told them to expect louder and louder queer resistance. The conservative queers were dead wrong, though, in the early movement when they insisted that our queer community did not have its own culture— it was already there for centuries underground. The conservatives insisted that we were just like everyone else, aside from who we take to bed. But the movement that grew out of the bars, out of the street demonstrations, pushed by our publications, depicted in our books, sung about in our music, the movement itself is proof that a queer culture and community very much exists. And 50 years later, queer culture will still exist larger in scale than even the most radical early activists might have imagined, queer influence on mainstream culture will become immeasurable. But liberation does not necessarily mean assimilation to the mainstream. The homophiles won us the right to work for or fight for the American government, but you are not obligated to. Later, activists will win us the right to marry. But queer love has never required legal validation to exist. We exist beyond marriage and military and monogamy. We are people who have been thrown up generation after generation through the millennia by the forces of natural selection, Harry Hay once said. And through that, we are able to act as a mirror to see certain things that the straights can't possibly see because if two homosexuals can live together and thrive and to be constructive rather than destructive to each other and themselves without legal bonds, without children, without the sanction 
of the great society, then uh, they can demonstrate to heterosexuals they need not be so concerned with their property and their marriage and divorce laws. And you think that you're happier now that you've realized exactly where your feelings lie? Indeed, I'm just sorry that it took so long. I'm sorry that I spent so many years in the closet. We no longer have to moderate our behavior for oppressors. Our movement was born out of resistance against 1950s domesticity, war, religion, capitalism, and heteronormative rules. Our queer ancestors won us the freedom to do as we wish. You can go out into the desert and live among the radical fairies, or you may be a celebrated drag king in your local bar, or you may run the country. None of these is better than the others, and all of them are your right. If straight people can do it, why can't we? No, really, if straight people can do all this carrying on and holding hands and kids in the park, why can't we do it? All right. They ain't no better than I am. Liberation did not begin at Stonewall, as we've learned over many episodes. The movement was only taking a new form at the uprising. At the first ever queer history conference in 2019, historian Susan Stryker will say that the Stonewall uprising was one highly significant episode in the middle of a very long story. A story that intersects with the civil rights movement for racial justice, the women's movement, the anti-war movement, the struggle of the people. With homophiles joining the struggle for liberation, uprisings like Stonewall became inevitable. As the Christopher Street Liberation Day March arrives in Central Park, people sing a song so commonly heard at the various protests over the past two decades, We Shall Overcome, as thousands pour into Sheep Meadow. The feeling was pervasive. It seemed as if everyone there knew that something of major importance had just happened to them, that there could be no turning back to the old days of hiding, degradation, and denial of their basic humanity. Oh, this is tremendous. It's really great. There's been nothing like this before, and I hope it sets a tone and a trend for the whole future. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's just absolutely incredible. I don't think the impact will mean anything to me until two days later. Oh, it's fantastic. I feel better. Brothers and sisters, man, this is really where it's at. It was so beautiful. I was in the middle of the march. I couldn't see the front because it was too far ahead of me, and I couldn't see the back. It was, I couldn't believe it. It was just fantastic. It was beautiful. Beautiful. I'm just uh, the happiest day so far of my life. <laughs> Kayla Husen writes for Gay. Thousands of gay men and women marched joyously through the streets of Manhattan Sunday, June 28th to celebrate the first birthday of homosexual liberation. The unprecedented march was the culmination of Gay Pride Week. The ranks of festive participants stretched out over 20 city blocks as they moved from Sheridan Square in Greenwich Village up 6th Avenue to Sheep Meadow in Central Park. Throughout the meadow, gay couples cuddled, kissed, laughed, and listened to themselves being described by announcers across the band of their transistor radios. Television cameras ogled at the open show of gay love and affection and solidarity. The gay-in went on until well after sundown, after which Gay's reporter was told love knew no bounds. Said one lesbian, 
We've just experienced the world's greatest consciousness raising event for homosexuals. Said the flyer from the umbrella committee of sponsoring groups. We are showing our strength and our love for each other by coming here today. We are all participants in the most important gay event in history. Other early activists, Jack Nichols and Lige Clark, walk up the hill, turn around, and look back at the crowd. Jack tears up. The march is so long, they can't see the end of it. In the crowd, Diana Davies snaps photos of Marsha P. Johnson, her hair up in ribbons, walking with her community toward the park. No longer sitting alone, typing letters to an indifferent government, Frank Kameny is overwhelmed by the turnout, too. Next week, he'll write to a British gay activist about the march, saying, It was the culmination of Gay Pride Week, and that, gay pride, was the theme of the march. Be proud of your homosexuality. Come out into the open. Hold up your head in pride. Life takes its turnings, and you don't foresee them. But ultimately, I think, in retrospect, life has been more exciting stimulating and interesting and satisfying and rewarding and fulfilling than I ever could possibly have dreamed it would have been. Oh, go to it, Myra. <laughs> Myra, say something to the press. Fights are still ahead, but now our community is better prepared than ever to take them on. As a result of our liberation, there will be backlash. But queer activism will lift queer people into power. The march itself will be taken over by the corrupt mafia man who owned the Stonewall, Ed Murphy, who will call himself the first Stonewaller, and reverse the parade route so that it ends in the village where more profits can be made. Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson will launch a campaign called Take Back the Day. There will always be activism surrounding our culture, especially at our biggest annual event. As gay men take over the march, lesbians will launch the Dyke March in 1993. As corporations begin to put their logos in rainbow and pander to queers for a buck, and as police officers are chosen to lead pride parades in many cities, the New York City Drag March will launch in 1994, on the 25th anniversary of Stonewall, to give people an alternative march. The Drag March will celebrate gender fuckery in the streets from Tompkins Square Park all the way to the Stonewall. And on the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising in 2019, the Reclaim Pride Coalition will launch the Queer Liberation March encouraging queers of color, drag artists, and sex workers to walk the original path of the 1970s Christopher Street Liberation Day March. In the following two years, 2020 and 21, the Queer Liberation March will transform again, specifically supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Police will meet those marchers in Washington Square Park with pepper spray and batons, reminding us why all of this marching started in the first place. The movement began in shared glances. Two women, finally alone, chatting in a living room. 
genderqueer friends at a dumpy backroom bar hiding from the cops, men cruising quietly under lampposts in the park. In 1970, on Liberation Day, thousands of queers of all kinds hold hands in Central Park, dance in the sunlight, lie in the grass, kiss their lovers, camp with their family, and celebrate our powerful community. Tell me how you feel about being here today. I feel it's beautiful. It's fantastic. How many years have you been a homosexual? I was born homosexual. It's beautiful. That's the end. You listened all the way to the end of the series. Wow, thank you so much. Making this show has completely changed my life. I've learned so much about myself and the world, and so many incredible opportunities and friendships have come my way. What means most to me, though, is everyone who has reached out, who experienced this time period, who told me what rang true to them or what memories came back to them. I'm so grateful you all joined me. And to folks who are younger, who have enjoyed learning our community's history, thank you so much for being open to listening to stories about the past. They're so important to better understanding ourselves and our world. Thank you all for listening to me as I learned and as I found my voice. It's been an honor to educate the children. Special thank you to John Roth and Dominic Caruso, Voices on the Pod, who pushed me to make the podcast in the first place that night in Dom's apartment. Thank you to Jen Freitag for being the house mother I needed and a constantly reliable friend. Thank you to my Judy's Joey Kane and Will Roscoe for your guidance. And finally, I can't say thanks enough to my dearest Albert Williams, a constant source of knowledge who first told me about the Mattachine, who has helped me in countless ways including by voicing Frank Kameny. Bill, darling, you're my Auntie Mame. <laughs> they recently picketed the Village Voice, which used to be avant-garde, but which... This is so funny to read that. <laughs> yeah, because they saw money. <laughs> And then they became rich, and then they sold themselves to another company, which made the, which who published New York Magazine, and I got fired. Fuck them. Even though this is the finale, I've got lots more queer serial-related projects in the works. In the meantime, follow me on Instagram at Queer Serial for updates and tons of images from the podcast story. Subscribe to my periodic email updates, and please stay tuned for the upcoming new Queer Serial sister series, Give 'Em Hell, Harry, the man who kept Harvey Milk's dream alive. Harvey left a list of successors on his audio will, and my good Judy, Will Roscoe, and I are telling you the story of Harry Britt, a minister from Texas who reluctantly filled Harvey's shoes. And as I mentioned earlier, you'll hear some familiar names, Del Martin, Phyllis Lyon, the Society for Individual Rights, the Tavern Guild, and so much more. Check out our Indiegogo page to support production of that podcast, and you'll get some fabulous perks and an exclusive preview of the series. And you'll learn some more about Harry Britt. There's a link in the episode notes. And uh, did I mention my Patreon yet? (laughs) There's a link to that in the episode notes, too. She will continue full steam ahead with bonus episodes, research dives, and all the filthy and fabulous queer history that we love. 
Patreon donors, stay tuned for some shoutouts on the new Sister Series podcast. Also, I'm leaving tons of links in the episode notes to many things referenced in this episode, like a video of Bette Midler at the Continental Baths. Check them out. That's amazing. Right? Wait, where? They were in... So this was like a bathhouse. Yeah, they're in the Continental like a sex Baths club. In, in New York. Yeah, this is where Bette and Barry Manilow played before she was anybody. Really? Yeah, this is where Bathhouse Betty comes from. And Jack saw her there and wrote about her in his magazine. She was pl- That was like a th- common thing people would like... Oh, yeah. Play in bathhouses? Oh, my God. I'm going to send this to you. There is a surviving video of Bette playing the bathhouses. It is so good. That is good. wild. Yeah. Teachers, feel free to DM me on any social media or email me at queerserial at gmail.com if you would like transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors. It's become, like, my little personal goal to get my entire queer family in the show, and I think it has just about happened now. Like, I don't think there's a queer person I know that's not in it now. That's fucking awesome. Thank you to the nearly 100 people who gave me their time and showed off their talented voices on this podcast. God, you're all so generous. Especially my dear friend, John Roth, whose voice is on almost every single episode of Queer Serial. Thank you, Johnny. In the finale, he played FBI Directress J. Edgar Hoover and Mayor Lindsay. Martha Shelley was played by Eliana Stone, Rita Mae Brown by Anne-Marie Friedo, Kayla Husen by Katie Spleet, Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle, Mafia Guy and a Cop by Mike Lysak, GLF member by Olgi Fryer. Officer, I'm here to arrest that man. Mario Procaccino by my grandpa, Steve Camp. And we must show understanding and compassion for them. You got it. That's a wrap on Gramps. Oh, I'm glad we, I didn't think we would make it. We did it. With all those lines, I thought. What a sweetheart. Thomas Foran by my dad, Matt Camp. Senator Markey by Evan Camp. Carol Greitzer by my aunt, Adrian Barker. So much family on the pod. Especially my star, who played the USA Today reporter in this episode, my granny, Faye Camp. That's a wrap on Granny. That's a wrap on Granny. <laughs> that was so good. Thank you so much. You sure? You yeah, nailed you nailed it. All right. Yeah. So much fun. I'm so glad you did oh, it. I, I, uh, I'm very excited. You are. That's the last episode of the series. Michael Donson was played by David Weissman. Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine by Garrett Williams. Sylvia Rivera by Nico Valdez. Jack Nichols by Nick Large, Rita Laporte by Damika Victorian, and WNYC audience member by Amanda Victorian, Phyllis Lyon by Jane Sarinska, and Del Martin by Salvio Gatto. Check out Del's full essay, If That's All There Is, on my bonus podcast on Patreon. Salvio does a fantastic reading. Ellen Broidy was played by Paula Harrington, Arthur Evans by Paul DeCicio, Jim Owls by Dan Unser, Marty Robinson by Andrew Casey, Arthur Bell by Julian Hall, various beautiful queers by Marissa Barbara Clayton, Lucian Grateri, Zoya Barker, Courtney Tesh, Mike Kanish, and Maggie Smith. And of course, my dear Judy, who inspired this whole show, Albert Williams as Frank Kameny. And satisfying and rewarding and fulfilling than I could have... Fuck you, I wish. Life has been more exciting and stimulating and interesting and satisfying and rewarding and fulfilling than I could ever possibly have dreamed it would have been. That is beautiful. God! Why didn't you make me a rich man? (laughs) 
Big thanks to all the archives who let me dig around in history, especially the One Archives at USC Libraries in Los Angeles, the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives in Chicago. Thanks especially to all the historians like Eric Marcus, Will Roscoe, and Matthew Reamer, who have been a constant source of help. Also, thanks to my pal Katie, who reaches out with great history all the time and gave me some fantastic insight on latter editor Barbara Greer. Wonderful audio for this episode comes from Breck Artery's astounding audio documentary, Gay and Proud. Check out the link in the episode notes to hear the whole thing free. And also, of course, Washington Mattachino Lily Vincennes shot an astounding documentary of the first Christopher Street March, also called Gay and Proud, which you can watch for free. Check out the link. You can also watch clips of Marsha and Sylvia from the Love Tapes collection at those links in the episode notes. The fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Teal. Some of the music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. But most of the music this season is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. That's all. Wow. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. Bye. last rant <laughs> and then um, the final scene spoiler is the first Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade Aww. These, oh it's just a, one that's minute. an incomplete script I maybe. thought I had a rant oh that, that was your that was your oh last that rant. was my rant that was your last I would have done it better oh it was fantastic Bill <laughs> Um, I wanted him to end on a happy note during the parade no I want to end on a rant <laughs> I want a big speech <laughs> I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> no. <laughs> and now, Michael, you are a sad, pathetic man. You are a homosexual and do not want to be. But you will always be a homosexual, always, until the day you die. Friends. <laughs> I'm going to put that in the credits of the last episode. <laughs> Until the day you die. The fascinating thing about that monologue is that at the time the play came out, that was scary to be told that. Oh, that it's unending? And now, but now that you look at it and go... So get used to it, because it's fun. Yeah. I mean, it's actually a liberating thing. It's mm -hmm. not a sad thing. At the time, it's daunting, I guess. But I mean, I'm talking about from the audience's point of view. Yeah. The message yeah. in the play. Yeah. So get over it. <laughs>